Trump, Trump's adult Trump children, squirming in deposition, and some other individuals. That lawsuit seeks to be clear at least $250 million in damages for Donald Trump's fraudulent financial valuations of his properties, the fraudulent valuations that he put in his statements of financial conditions and other financial wrongdoing by Trump, his adult children, the Trump Organization, and other defendants. That case is set for trial on October 3rd of this year. I'm going to play for you the video deposition in just one moment. I want to clarify one thing as well. In this deposition, you will see Donald Trump invoke his Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination to each and every question. Because this is a civil lawsuit, when you invoke the Fifth Amendment, as you will see Donald Trump doing in this video, that serves as what's called an adverse inference against Donald Trump, meaning the jury and judge can and will infer that the reason Donald Trump is not answering the questions is because he is covering up for the wrongdoing that he would have to admit if he answered the questions. In a criminal case, you are not allowed to make that adverse inference. In a civil case, you can. And in addition to the monetary damages that Letitia James is seeking, she's also seeking injunctive relief to stop Donald Trump, the Trump Organization, and his adult children children from conducting business again in the state of New York. So we're going to play this video deposition for you right now, some of the clips that is from the video deposition. You will first hear New York Attorney General Letitia James giving the introduction. She sat there and stood Donald Trump down and Donald Trump back down, invoking the fifth to some of the most basic questions. New York Attorney General Letitia James then passes it to her deputy, Kevin Wallace, who's there with some of the other lawyers from the New York Attorney General's office. Uh, Mr. Wallace then begins to ask questions to Donald Trump. Before that, Donald Trump reads a prepared statement that he made saying how he's being persecuted and it's a witch hunt, and then he will assert the Fifth Amendment. And then you will see as Donald Trump, the weak, weak, and desperate Donald Trump invoke his Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination like the coward that he is to some of the most basic questions like, are you familiar with the statement of financial conditions that you filed or were filed on your behalf? I invoke the Fifth Amendment. So on and so on. So without further ado, let's play these portions of the video deposition of Donald Trump in the New York Attorney General's special proceeding against Donald Trump from August 10th of 2022. Good morning. You're going on the record at 9.38 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time on August 10th, 2022. Please note that the microphones are sensitive and may pick up whispering and private conversations. Please mute your phones at this time. Audio and video recording will continue to take place unless all parties agree to go off the record. This is Media Unit 1 of the video recorded deposition of Donald J. Trump taken by counsel for in the matter of financial statements and investigation for the state of New York Office of Attorney General. The location of the deposition is 28 Liberty Street, New York, New York, 
My name is Zeph Koda, representing Veritex, and I am the videographer. The court reporter is Linda Greenstein from the firm Veritex. I am not authorized to administer an oath. I am not related to any party misaction, nor am I financially interested in the outcome. Counsel and all present, included, including those remotely, have been noted for the record. Will the court reporter please swear in the witness, and then counsel may proceed. Good morning, Mr. Trump. My name is Letitia James, and I'm the Attorney General of the great state of New York. Before we begin, if everybody could please silence their cell phones, we would appreciate that. Um, I wanted to begin with some preliminary rules, some ground rules, sure. if you don't mind, and then I'm going to turn it over to Kevin Wallace, who will conduct this examination. Um, Mr. Trump, you've testified under oath many times, is that correct? Yes. And um, so I take it you are familiar with the ground rules on uh, for how testimony proceeds, is that correct? Yes. So I'll skip that part of the um, introduction, is, is that okay? Sure. Okay, and are, and are you okay right I now? Am. Okay, yes. good, good, good. What I will do is explain some differences between the procedures in a civil deposition and the testimony we are taking today. Uh, because this is a, an investigatory proceeding. Um, you do not have a right to have an attorney with you in this investigation, uh, but I have agreed that your, your attorney will be present uh, today. However, this examination is not the same as a, a deposition in ordinary civil litigation, and your attorney's role will be limited to consultation with you in order to give you legal advice regarding privileged matters, if any, or your right not to incriminate yourself. Um, notwithstanding any objection by your attorneys, you are still required to respond to any questions unless your attorney specifically directs you not to answer. Anything you say in this, in, in this examination may be used in a civil proceeding, and that could include a civil enforcement proceeding or a criminal action. Uh, uh, do you understand that? Okay. Um, is that a yes? I don't know what I did wrong, but uh, the answer is yes, I do okay. understand. Thank you. You have the right to refuse to answer any question if a truthful answer to the question would tend to incriminate you. Do you understand that? Yes. And any willful misstatement by you may constitute perjury. Do you understand that, sir? Yes. Finally, this investigation is confidential. We request that you not discuss this matter, your testimony here today, and any documents that you have produced or may produce in connection with today's testimony with anyone other than your attorneys. Do you understand that, sir? No. Uh, when you say confidential, uh, we're not allowed to talk about this to the press? Or? Correct. Oh. I believe what she means is what happened in this, in this room, the details of what happened in this room. Okay. Obviously, okay with me. Yeah. The fact that it happened, yes, but not the details. Okay. Neither you nor anyone acting on your behalf has the right to obtain a copy of the transcript uh, of your testimony here today from the reporter. Um, and neither you nor uh, Veritex are permitted to release copies of the transcript to anyone other than representatives of this office, the Office of the Attorney General. Extensive note-taking or any attempt um, to create a transcript of the proceedings here by you or your attorneys is not authorized and will not be permitted. Um, 
Are you taking any medication or drugs of any kind that make it difficult for you to understand or answer any of the questions today, sir? And ask And are you feeling okay today? Yes. And are you sick today? No. Okay. And do you have any conditions that could prevent you from giving full, complete, and truthful answers to any questions today? No. Um, and is there any other reason why you cannot give full, complete, and accurate testimony here today? Well, you have to tell me how you're doing this. Yes. No. No, other than what I'm saying. Okay. Yes. I'm not going to turn it over to Kevin Wallace. Thank, Thank you, sir. Thank you. Good morning, Mr. Trump. Good morning. Uh, as the Attorney General mentioned, my name is uh, Kevin Wallace. Sitting next to me is Alex Finkelstein from our office. And sitting next to him is uh, Samantha Stern, who's a paralegal uh, with our office. They're going to be assisting me during the day today. Um, I'm going to take a moment just to correct one thing from the read-in, uh, is that we go off the record not when both parties agree, but when uh, the Attorney General directs that we are off the record. Uh, during these proceedings, the Attorney General controls the record. Um, so, uh, Mr. Trump, what did you do to prepare for today's examination? Very little. If you'd like, I could read the statement, but very little. Um, well, can we go? Yes, he would like I will to. now use my uh, moment to go off the record. Thank you. Sorry, just read the statement. You're going off the record at 9.44 a.m.? One of the greatest players in history was cheated out of his career. Hold on, stop. Go back before that, because this is important. I never saw somebody shoot like that. What was this dude torching the Lakers? He was Steph Curry before Steph Curry. Quickness, and greater flair he had. He wasn't good, he was great. He looked like I was watching a guy play basketball. To watch him have Tourette's Syndrome and still destroy the best players in the league. I could have nine shots in a row. If there's one glitch in the move, I have to start over. Somebody go that man. Couldn't embrace success. This is too good to be true. Things like this don't happen to people like me. I don't think anybody could have foreseen what was about to happen. I was having issues with my faith. I embraced Islam, and life changed. I noticed that Bakhmut was not standing for the national anthem. He believes the flag symbolizes oppression. Am I saying that everything in America is bad? No. But wherever the bad is, as a Muslim, we don't stand for it. That's when a lot of people turned on him. Mahmoud never said, I'm going to burn the house down. But the Klan burned his house down. I thought I was going to die every day. We should have covered him. We should have had his back. But we didn't. His willingness to take a stand in an era where very few pro athletes did this. You should be celebrated for that. Biore blemish patches. Absorb plus an oil. Visible results. Now let's take a quick break to talk about our next partner, Zbiotics. You ever skip a workout because of drinks the night before? Well, me too. If you're committed to your healthy routine this year, you need Zbiotics. Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. 
It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. So here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics, it produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. It's designed to work like your liver, but in your gut where you need it the most. Just remember to drink Zbiotics before drinking alcohol. Drink responsibly and get a good night's sleep to feel your best tomorrow. The first time I tried Zbiotics was on vacation with my wife. You know, as instructed, I drank a bottle of Zbiotics before any alcohol, and I was amazed at how good I felt the next day. Give Zbiotics a try for yourself. Go to zbiotics.com slash Midas to get 15% off your first order when you use Midas at checkout. Zbiotics is also backed with a 100% money-back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, head to zbiotics.com slash Midas and use the code Midas at checkout for 15% off. Thank you, Zbiotics, for sponsoring this. And now, back to the video. We're back on the record at 9.45 a.m. Uh, Mr. Trump, I understand you have a statement that you wanted to read into the record. Yes. Um, would you please feel free to start? Thank you very much. This is the greatest witch hunt in the history of our country. There has never been another president or perhaps even another politician who has been persecuted, harassed, and in every other way unfairly treated like President Donald J. Trump. What Letitia James has tried to do the last number of years is a disgrace to the legal system, an affront to the New York State taxpayers, and a violation of the solemn rights and protections afforded by the United States Constitution. She developed a political platform and made a career out of maliciously attacking me and my business before she even understood or was elected or reviewed one of the millions of pages of documents we willingly produced. We willingly produced these documents. James proclaimed that she, quote, looks forward to going into the office of Attorney General every day suing me and then going home. This is during her campaign. She announced that she was obsessed with, quote, taking me on, taking me on and that her eyes were set on Trump Tower, quote, Trump Tower. She even assured her supporters as an election promise very strongly that, quote, we're going to definitely sue him. Before she even knew anything about me, we're going to be a real pain in his ass. He's going to know my name personally. And she claimed I was on an illegitimate and that it was an illegitimate president. Quote, illegitimate president. In her AG speech, she promised to, quote, shine a bright light into every dark corner of Trump's real estate holdings. Shortly thereafter, she vowed to, quote, use every area of the law to investigate President Trump and his business transactions and that, his, that of his family as well. She knows nothing about us. This is when she knew absolutely nothing about us. It was very unfair. This whole thing is very unfair. 
as a pretense for commencing her bogus investigation. Letitia James relied on the testimony of Michael Cohen, a convicted felon and liar. The Southern District of New York astutely described Cohen as a man who, quote, repeatedly used his power and influence for deceptive ends by engaging in, quote, extensive, deliberate, and serious criminal conduct consistent with a, quote, pattern of deception that permeated his professional life. This was in a long, many-page statement by him. It only gets worse. This is the witness, a stone-cold loser, a real loser, that she used to justify her obsessive work, her obsessive investigation of me, even though he got in civil and criminal trouble for representing himself on a taxi cab company that he had and other things, and also others as a lawyer. I once asked, if you're innocent, why are you taking the Fifth Amendment? I was asking that question. Now I know the answer to that question. When your family, your company, and all the people in your orbit have become the targets of an unfounded, politically motivated witch hunt, supported by lawyers, prosecutors, and even the fake news media, you really have no choice. We cannot permit a renegade and out-of-control prosecutor to use this investigation as a means of advancing her political career. New York deserves better, and this country deserves better. Being a prosecutor is a very important thing. This is a vindictive and self-serving fishing expedition, the likes of which this country has perhaps never seen before. If there was any question in my mind, the raid on my home two days ago, Mar-a-Lago, Palm Beach, Florida, by the FBI, just two days prior to this deposition, think of it, wiped out any of that uncertainty. I have absolutely no choice because the current administration and many prosecutors in this country have lost all moral and ethical bounds of decency. Anyone in my position not taking the Fifth Amendment would be a fool, an absolute fool. One statement or answer that is ever so slightly off, just ever so slightly, by accident, by mistake, such as it was a sunny, beautiful day when actually it was slightly overcast would be met by law enforcement at a level seldom seen in this country, because I've experienced it. The United States Constitution exists for this very purpose, and I will utilize it to the fullest extent and defend myself against this malicious attack by this administration, this Attorney General's office, and all other attacks on my family, my business, and our country. Accordingly, under the advice of my counsel and for all of the above reasons, I respectfully decline to answer the questions under the rights and privileges afforded to every citizen under the United States Constitution. This will be my answer to any further questions.
um, included among the rights and privileges afforded every citizen under the United States Constitution, does that include the Fifth Amendment right to yes. uh, avoid incrimination? Yes. Is that your, your counsel? Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, I will just note for the record that was a, a lengthy statement. Uh, obviously, we disagree with all of the characterizations, but to keep the, today's proceedings moving, um, I'm going to move on to my questioning. Um, so, Ms. Trump, I take it you are, are not going to answer any questions about your preparation today with your counsel. Is that correct? I mean, should I say this, or should I respond to that? Just read that. For all of the reasons provided in my answer, which is incorporated herein, in its entirety, I decline to answer the question. Uh, Mr. Trump, the focus of our investigation, and what we are primarily going to cover today, involves the presentation of your statements of financial condition between 2011 and the present. Uh, I take it you are generally familiar with those statements. Is that correct? For all of the reasons provided in my answer, which is incorporated herein, in its entirety, I decline to answer the question. Okay. Um, Did you review any of those statements from the period 2011 to 2021 during your preparation for today's testimony? For all of the reasons provided in my answer, which is incorporated herein, in its entirety, I decline to answer the question. Uh, counsel, I think we can all stipulate that if he says same answer, we will all understand it to, right. to be the same invocation to speed things up. Okay. No problem. Uh, with that note, sir, um, you are currently the president of the Trump Organization, is that correct? Same answer. Uh, and when I refer to the Trump Organization, is it accurate to describe that as the trade name for an umbrella organization that holds uh, assets beneficially owned by you? Same answer. Uh, is it fair to say that the Trump Organization sits on top of several hundred different legal entities? Same answer. Uh, are the assets of the Trump Organization currently held in a revocable trust? Same answer. Uh, is that revocable trust the Donald J. Trump revocable trust dated April 7, 2014? Same answer. Uh, and you are the donor of the assets in that trust, is that correct? Same answer. Uh, and you are the sole beneficiary of the assets in that trust, is that correct? Same answer. Uh, why did you form that trust in April 2014? Same answer. Um, who were the trustees when the trust was first founded? Same answer. Um, at some point, Alan Weisselberg and your son, Don Jr., were the trustees, is that correct? Same answer. Uh, did you ever consider retaining independent trustees to oversee the trust? Same answer. Um, at present, your son, Don Jr., is the sole trustee, is that correct? Same answer. Trump, the court reporter has handed you a document. It is a printout of a, an Excel spreadsheet, so it doesn't have a document number on it. But I'll represent to you that it is the supporting spreadsheet for your statement of financial condition for the year June 30, 2011. Um, do you recognize the form of this document? Same answer. 
this is the supporting data spreadsheet that was used to prepare your 2011 statement of financial condition. Is that correct? Same answer. Uh, the spreadsheet is used to calculate the valuations contained in the statement of financial condition. Is that correct? Same answer. Uh, you reviewed this document with Alan Weisselberg before it was finalized as part of the 2011 statement of financial condition. Is that Same correct? Same answer. Uh, you reviewed this document with Jeff McConney before the 2011 Statement of Financial Condition was issued. Is that correct? Same answer. Uh, you reviewed and approved the valuations and valuation methods contained in this document before it was finalized. Is that correct? Same answer. Uh, and you approved the valuations and valuation methods contained in this document before it was finalized. Is that correct? Same answer. Uh, the valuations contained in this document reflect false and misleading valuation statements. Is that correct? Same answer. Uh, you were aware at the time this was finalized that the statement of financial condition for 2011 contained false and misleading statements. Is that correct? Same answer. In preparing the 2011 statement of financial conditions, uh, Alan Weisselberg and Jeff McConney worked at your direction and followed your instructions and inflated asset valuations on the statement of financial conditions by employing false or misleading assumptions. Is that correct? Same answer. Uh, from at least 2005 through the present, You've had an ongoing agreement with Mr. Weisselberg and Mr. McConney that they would prepare the statement of financial condition in a manner that included valuations that depended on false and misleading assumptions as a means of inflating reported values. Is that correct? Same answer. From at least 2005 through the present, you have had an ongoing agreement with Mr. Weisselberg and Mr. McConney and others that they would prepare the statement of financial condition in a manner that included intentional overvaluations. Is that correct? Same answer. From at least 2005 through the present, you have had an ongoing agreement with Mr. Weisselberg and Mr. McConney and others that they would prepare the statement of financial condition in a manner that included false and misleading valuations statements. Is that correct? Same answer. Can we go off the record for one sec? We're going off the record at 1.51 p.m. We're at 29, right? We're back on the record at 1.53 p.m. Um, Mr. Trump, uh, we don't have a hard copy of the next document, but I'm going to designate the uh, document that is up on the screen as Exhibit 29. Uh, this is an electronic copy of uh, the supporting spreadsheet for your statement of financial condition. It bears the production number, let me say, the document bears the production number, Mazars NYAG 00161836. Um, do you recognize the form of this document? Same answer. Uh, this is the supporting data spreadsheet for the 2019 statement of financial condition, is that correct? Same answer. Uh, this spreadsheet was used to calculate the valuations contained in the Statement of Financial Condition. Is that correct? Same answer. Uh, you reviewed this document with Alan Weisselberg and your son, Don Trump, Jr., before it was finalized as part of the 2019 Statement of Financial Condition. Is that correct? Same answer. You reviewed and approved the valuations and valuation methods contained in this document before it was finalized. Is that correct? Same answer. Uh, the 2019 Statement of Financial Condition contained false and misleading valuations and statements. Is that correct? Same answer. You knew at the time it was finalized that the year 2019 Statement of Financial Condition contained false and misleading statements. Is that correct? Same answer. In preparing the 2019 Statement of Financial Condition, 
Mr. Weisselberg and Mr. McConney worked at your direction and followed your instructions to inflate asset valuations on the statement of financial condition by employing false and misleading assumptions. Is that correct? Amen, sir. Um, others in the accounting department also worked with Mr. Weisselberg and Mr. McConney to follow your instructions and inflate asset valuations on the statement of financial condition by employing false or misleading assumptions. Is that correct? Same answer. The court reporter has handed you a document that has been designated Exhibit 30. It bears the production number DBNYAG248537. It has a title Donald J. Trump, Statement of Financial Condition, June 30, 2020. This is your Statement of Financial Condition for the year 2020. Is that correct? Same answer. You approved this document before it was issued. Is that correct? Same answer. You reviewed the valuations and valuation methods contained in this document before it was issued. Is that correct? Same answer. This is, uh, we'll stop there actually, and let me get into the document. Oh, Samantha, could you put up? Is it? Uh, Samantha has put up on the screen uh, a document that bears the production number Mazars NYAG 00162291. Uh, do you recognize the form of this document? Same answer. This is the supporting data spreadsheet for the 2020 Statement of Financial Condition. Is that correct? Same answer. Uh, this spreadsheet was used to calculate the valuations contained in the Statement of Financial Condition. Is that correct? Same answer. You reviewed this document with Alan Weisselberg before it was finalized as part of the 2020 Statement of Financial Condition. Is that correct? Same answer. You reviewed and approved the valuations and valuation methods contained in this document before it was finalized. Is that correct? Same answer. So the 2020 Statement of Financial Condition contained false and misleading valuations and statements. Is that correct? Same answer. You knew at the time it was finalized that the 2020 Statement of Financial Condition contained false and misleading statements. Is that correct? Same answer. In preparing the 2020 Statement of Financial Condition, Alan Weisselberg, Jeff McConney, and others worked at your direction and followed your instructions to inflate asset valuations on the Statement of Financial Condition by employing false or misleading assumptions. Is that correct? Same answer. That's 31, yeah. The court reporter has handed you a document that has been designated as Exhibit 32. It is, has the production number DBNYAG 405109. It is entitled Donald J. Trump Statement of Financial Condition, June 30, 2021. 
This is your 2021 statement of financial condition. Is that correct? Same answer. Uh, you approved this document before it was issued. Is that correct? Same answer. You reviewed the valuations and valuation methods contained in this document before it was issued. Is that correct? Same answer. Sam, would you pull up the next document, please? Yep. Um, Mr. Trump, Samantha has pulled up onto the screen a document that has the production number TTO 0616407, and we will designate this as Exhibit 33. Uh, this is the supporting data spreadsheet for the year 2021 statement of financial condition. Is that correct? Same answer. This spreadsheet was used to calculate the valuations contained in the statement of financial condition. Is that correct? Same answer. You reviewed this document with Alan Weisselberg and your son, Don Trump Jr., before it was finalized as part of the 2021 statement of financial condition. Is that correct? Same answer. You reviewed and approved the valuations and valuation methods contained in this document before it was finalized. Is that correct? Same answer. The 2021 Statement of Financial Condition contained false and misleading valuations and statements. Is that correct? Same answer. You knew at the time it was finalized that the 2021 Statement of Financial Condition contained false and misleading statements. Is that correct? Same answer. In preparing the 2021 Statement of Financial Condition, Mr. Weisselberg, Mr. McConney, and others worked at your direction and followed your instructions to inflate asset valuations on the statement of financial condition by employing false and misleading assumptions. Is that correct? Same answer. Can we go off the record? We're going off the record at 2 p.m. I'm just going to get some. We're back on the record at 2.04 p.m. Uh, Mr. Trump, for each year, from 2011 to 2021, did you or someone acting at your direction sign, actually, let's strike that question. Um, Mr. Trump, for each year from 2011 to 2020, did you or someone acting at your direction sign an engagement letter with the Mazars firm to prepare the statement of financial condition? Same answer. Uh, in the year 2021, did some, did you or someone acting in your direction sign an engagement letter with Whitley Penn to prepare your statement of financial condition? Same answer. For the years 2011 through 2020, did you or someone acting in your direction sign a representation letter to the Mazars firm concerning the accuracy of the statements in the Statement of Financial Condition? Same answer. For the year 2021, did you or someone acting in your direction sign a certification letter attesting to the accuracy of the Statement of Financial Condition for the Whitley Penn firm? Same answer.
Trump, the court reporter has handed you a document that has been designated as Exhibit 34. It is a certification to Deutsche Bank from you, Donald J. Trump, dated November 11, 2014. Uh, if you could take a look at the second page of this document, is that your signature on page two? Same answer. bullet point under point number one it says attached here to is guarantor's statement of financial condition as of June 30, 2014. Were you aware that this submission of your statement of financial condition was a material term of your loan with Deutsche Bank? Same answer. If you turn to the second page, under point six, it states all of the representations and warranties made by guarantor under section nine little i to nine little four, six, and sections false assumptions. Is that correct? Same answer. You knew at the time the valuation was submitted to the IRS that the Seven Springs appraisal incorporated intentionally false assumptions about the development timeline for the site. Is that correct? <laughs> you knew at the time the valuation was submitted to the IRS that the Cushman appraisers adopted these assumptions intentionally to inflate the value of the easement donation. Is that correct? Same answer. You knew that inflating the appraised value would increase the tax deduction available to you. Is that correct? Same answer. Uh, you knew that your attorney, Sherry Dillon, asked the Cushman and Wakefield appraisers to inflate the value of the easement. Is that correct? Same answer. Did you instruct her to get them to reach a higher value? Same answer. You were aware that approvals you had received from the town of Bedford... No, strike that. You were aware of the appraisals you had received from the town of Bedford and its agencies for the development of the Seven Springs site. Is that correct? Same answer. You were aware of the restrictions that these approvals incorporate. Is that correct? Same answer. You were aware that the approvals restricted the number of lots that could be accessed from the town of Bedford. Is that correct? Same answer. You knew that the valuations submitted to the IRS incorporated assumptions that failed to acknowledge development restrictions imposed by the town of Bedford. Is that correct? Same answer. 
you submitted evaluation on the Seven Springs easement to the IRS knowing that the devaluation depended on an inflated number of lots. Is that correct? Same answer. You knew that Ms. Dillon would seek to conceal communications related to her work on the Seven Springs appraisal. Is that correct? Same answer. Looks like when we were transcribing, I may have talked about approvals from the town of Bedford. I may have muddled it and said appraisals from the town of Bedford. Right. I meant to say approvals. Okay. Um, Mr. Trump, going back to your Doral loan, is it correct that through the use of the inflated statement of financial condition to obtain a favorable interest rate, that you were able to save approximately 6% per annum on interest payments? owing on your $125 million in loans from Deutsche Bank. Same answer. Regarding your Chicago property, is it correct that through the use of the inflated statement of financial condition, you were able to uh, save at least 4% per annum in the interest payments on loans from Deutsche Bank originating in 2012 in connection with the Trump International Hotel and Tower Chicago? Same answer. Uh, with regards to your old post office property, is it correct that through the use of the inflated statement of financial condition to obtain a favorable interest rate, you were able to save at least 5% per annum in interest payments on the construction loan of up to $170 million from Deutsche Bank? Same answer. Is it correct that absent the $170 million construction loan from Deutsche Bank, you would not have obtained the ground lease on the old post office property or been able to provide the renovation to the property that occurred? Same answer. Um, next question is about uh, apartments held by your daughter at 502 Park Avenue. Um, do you know if the below market rent that she had on her rental apartments at 502 Park Avenue were provided in exchange for work performed as part of her responsibilities at the Trump Organization? Same answer. Do you know if the below market purchase options that you provided your daughter on 502 Park Avenue apartments was made in exchange for work performed as part of her job at the Trump Organization? Same answer. Do you know if the benefits from any below market rents were reflected in any tax forms at the Trump Organization? Same answer. Do you know if the value of any below market purchase options were reflected as either gifts or compensation on any tax forms at the Trump Organization? Same answer. We can go off the record. Okay. We're going off the record at 3.12 p.m. While we're off the record, let's do any of my... We're back on the record at 3.12 p.m. Uh, Mr. Trump, just back on the record. saying we are back on the record to confirm that we have completed our testimony today. Thank you for your appearance. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, everyone. Off the record. Thank you all.
part of waking up? Maggot tears in my cup. Check out the new Maggot Tears mug available now at store.midastouch.com. That's store.midastouch.com. It's 100% union made right here in the USA. I know I'm not tired of winning yet. How about you? Get yours today.
Anchors in the cloud. In the year 1911, the young explorer Hiram Bingham was exploring the mountainous cloud forests of Peru. He was chasing a rumor that had been circulating for many years, a rumor that an entire lost city might lie somewhere high in the Peruvian Andes, in a valley known as Urubamba. Bingham was skeptical but upon hearing a tip from a local guide, he decided to climb to the top of the precarious mountain trail and investigate. He later wrote about how his journey unfolded. So lofty are the peaks on either side that although the trail was frequently shadowed by dense tropical jungle, many of the mountains were capped with snow. There seemed to be little in the way of ruins and I began to think that my time had been wasted. However, the view was magnificent. On all sides of us rose the magnificent peaks of the Urubamba Canyon, while 2,000 feet below us, the rushing waters of the noisy river. Bingham climbed a little higher, hacking through the dense forest and fighting off the effects of altitude sickness that would often creep up on travelers in the high passes of the Andes. And soon, he stumbled across something that must have made his heart skip a beat. Presently, we found ourselves in the midst of a tropical forest, beneath the shade of whose trees we could make out a maze of ancient walls, the ruins of buildings made of blocks of granite, some of which were beautifully fitted together in the most refined style of Inca architecture. Bingham was impressed, but the more he explored, the more he realized that this was no mere scattering of ruins. A few roads farther along, we came to a little open space on which there were two splendid temples or palaces. The superior character of the stonework, the presence of these splendid edifices, and of what appeared to be an unusually large number of finely constructed stone dwellings, led me to believe that this might prove to be the largest and most important ruin discovered in South America. His track turned into a frenetic scramble, as crumbling ruins gave way to yet more and more ruins, and it became clear that a large settlement did indeed lie here under the dense scrub and undergrowth. For an hour and twenty minutes, we had a hard climb. A good part of the distance, we went on all fours, sometimes holding on by our fingernails. Here and there, a primitive ladder made from the roughly notched trunk of a small tree was placed in such a way as to help one 
over what might otherwise have been an impassable cliff. The heat was excessive. The ruins that Bingham had discovered were the remains of a royal estate of the kings of a people known as the Inca. It had lain completely abandoned for nearly four centuries on top of the craggy peaks of the Urubamba Valley. Today, it is one of the most recognizable and distinctive ruined places in the world, and it is known as Machu Picchu. It had once been an outpost of an empire that stretched right across the continent of South America and formed its most extensive and sophisticated civilization, an empire that had tamed one of the most hostile environments on Earth. As Bingham explored the overgrown ruins over the following weeks and months, clearing away the vegetation that rolled over these ancient walls, he must have asked himself, how had the people of this region built such a mighty fortress in the clouds? How had this great city gone undiscovered for so many centuries, and with no signs of war or destruction on its stones, what in all the world had happened to the Inca people of the Cloud Forest? My name's Paul Cooper, and you're listening to the Fall of Civilizations podcast. Each episode, I look at a civilization of the past that rose to glory, and then collapsed into the ashes of history. I want to ask, what did they have in common? What led to their fall? And what did it feel like to be a person alive at the time who witnessed the end of their world? In this episode, I want to look at the story of the Inca Empire. I want to explore how this unique culture grew up in one of the most extreme mountain landscapes that our planet can provide. I want to explain how they built the largest empire to ever arise in the Western Hemisphere. And I want to tell the story of how their society finally came to an end in the most dramatic and cataclysmic way imaginable. The Andes Mountains are the largest continental mountain range in the world. They stretch more than 7,000 kilometers across the South American landmass from north to south, a distance that stretches about a sixth of the way around the circumference of the Earth. They form part of the eastern edge of what's called the Pacific Ring of Fire, a nearly continuous chain of volcanic belts, lava-filled oceanic trenches, and towering mountains that stretches right around the coast of the Pacific Ocean. This is one of the most seismically active areas in the world, 
with around 90% of the world's earthquakes and about 75% of its volcanoes occurring along this enormous ring. Since their formation around 10 to 6 million years ago, these soaring peaks have had a dramatic effect on the circulation of the Earth's atmosphere, and they have given rise to some of the world's most extreme landscapes. To the east, they act as a wall to the continent's rain clouds, pooling and gathering them, and resulting in the vast jungle rainforest of the Amazon, home to over 400 billion trees. Although the Andes Mountains sit right beside the Pacific coast, and are nearly 3,000 kilometers from the Atlantic, still more than 90% of the water that falls in these mountains will drain into the Atlantic Ocean. These rainwaters follow the enormous watercourse of the Amazon River and bring a superabundance of life to this vast plain. But the land on the Pacific side of the mountains couldn't be more different. In fact, the desert that has formed on the western side of the mountains is the driest place on Earth, and it is known as the Atacama. The Atacama Desert may be the oldest desert on Earth, and has experienced its extreme climate and frosts in the New Fall of Civilizations documentary on this the Inca allowed the people of the Andes to grow food at even the highest altitudes and transformed these rocky slopes into shelves of fertile land, called Tiwanaku. And it grew up in what is now Western Bolivia, near the vast shores of the body of water known as Lake Titicaca. This is the largest lake in South America, and one of the highest in the world, today straddling the borders of Bolivia and Peru. This lake is so vast that it's often impossible to see the other side, and so in the craggy landscape of the Andes, it forms a completely unique place where the narrow valleys and jagged peaks suddenly give way to blue open skies, the placid surface of the lake reflecting it like a mirror, and a horizon vanishing into the distance. For the whole history of the people of the Andes, this lake would hold a special place in their imagination, and would form the center point of their mythology. The city of Tiwanaku held vast pyramid structures and impressive carved gateways, cut from solid blocks of stone weighing up to 66 tons. It was home to as many as 20,000 people, and formed one of the first capitals of the Andes. In the Inca creation story, we can see the cultural debt they owed to Tiwanaku. They believed it was the place where light was first brought to the world, when before there had been only darkness. During this time of total night, they say that a lord emerged from a lake in this land of Peru. 
they say he brought with him a certain number of people and went to the place near the lake where today there is a town called Tiwanaku. There, they say that he suddenly made the sun and day and ordered the sun to follow the course that it follows. Then, they say, he made the stars and the moon. From the Inca perspective, the light of civilization had been created at Tiwanaku. By the time that the Inca ruled the Andes, this ancient city was already a series of ruins. When the Inca first stumbled upon it, they would have found the ancient city abandoned, a chaotic mess of broken blocks of masonry, the high, grassy plains littered with the fragments of monumental statues, shattered fragments of stone heads staring out of the walls. To the Inca, the meaning of this place was clear. This must have been the workshop where the creator god Viracocha had worked to create the world. And these stone statues were his first failed attempts at creating human life. Apparently they got gold. He made some people from stone as a model of those that he would produce later, together with a chieftain to govern and rule over them, and many women some pregnant and others delivered. When he made all these of stone, he set them aside and then made another province, forming them of stones. In the Sumerian legends, the people of Mesopotamia recounted how the god Enlil created man out of clay, an idea that lived on in the Hebrew Bible. Clay was the element of ancient Mesopotamia, it was the substance that built their houses, their pots and tools, the substance that allowed them to develop writing. But in the Andes, the element that the people knew best was stone. In the Andes, stone was everywhere. It towered over you on either side in the valleys. It lay waiting for you if you dug too deeply into the thin soil. It was what you had to cut through to build canals to build your houses and temples. It even came tumbling and crashing down the mountainsides when earthquakes rocked the ground beneath your feet. So perhaps it's no coincidence that the Inca believed themselves to have been crafted from stone. It's in this city of Tiwanaku that the art of stone carving reached its earliest heights. Today, a great monument known as the Gate of the Sun still stands in ruins, covered with 48 intricately carved figures, perhaps representing something like the signs of the zodiac. The city of Tiwanaku was grand, with its elites living inside a fortified artificial island, guarded by four high stone walls, surrounded by a moat. But after a time, Tiwanaku also faded into obscurity. Still, its influence on the region was enormous, and all the civilizations that followed would retain something of its unique cultural imprint. One of these civilizations was the Wari. The Wari were experts at water control, and they marshaled enormous work gangs to build vast reservoirs and aqueducts 
that cut through the dry coastal plains and transformed the landscape of the low Andes. The Wari tamed the desert, building aqueducts up to 40 kilometers long to divert the sparse waters towards their cities. But they were never ornate or showy builders, like the people of Tiwanaku. Their buildings were rough constructions, pulled together out of uncarved field stones and locked together with mud for mortar. But they still liked to build big. The walls of their cities were sometimes two to three meters thick and up to 12 meters high. The Inca built on the foundations laid by the Wari, sometimes quite literally. At certain sites, you can see the walls of the Wari built from small stones, but with Inca additions extending and upgrading them in their distinctive signature style of massive megalithic stones. For reasons we don't quite understand, the Wari soon embarked on a rapid series of expansions that saw their power spread across the Andes. Some have guessed that they might have adopted a new expansionist religion that drove them to conquer their neighbors. Others have speculated that climate shifts may have reduced the habitability of their traditional desert territory, meaning that expansion may have been a matter of survival. Either way, they were incredibly successful. Between the mid-6th to mid-7th century, while Europe continued to reel from the collapse of the Roman Empire in the west, the Wari expanded across the hostile mountains of the Andes and brought people after people under their banner. And wherever the Wari went, they built terraces. Each terrace was a remarkable feat of engineering and displayed an intimate knowledge of the soil and the plants that grew in it. The walls of these terraces were sloped backwards, angled to hold in the earth and resist earthquake damage. They were floored with broken stones for drainage, which were then covered by gravel and sand. Finally, the Wari would gather rich topsoil, digging it up from the lower elevations and the river valleys, and carrying it up the mountain paths, laying it out to form the top layer of the terrace. This was constantly fertilized and turned over to aerate the soil. The stone walls of the terraces absorb the heat of the sun during the day, and then slowly release it into the earth throughout the night when frosts in the mountains could be severe. This technique allowed the people of the Andes to grow food at even the highest altitudes and transformed these rocky slopes into shelves of fertile land. In this manner, tomatoes, squashes and pumpkins, even types of tobacco, were grown in the high peaks of the Andes. One remarkable sight known as Morai, is thought to be a kind of laboratory where the Andean people could develop new strains and hybrids of crops for growing at high altitudes. 
Morai is a breathtaking series of circular terraces, looking at first glance something like a Roman amphitheatre, about 30 metres deep. Morai is located at a height of three and a half thousand metres above sea level, but its descending terraces act as a kind of artificial climate, with each terrace increasing the temperature as you descend in steady increments. In fact, the temperature difference from the top to the bottom of this well can be as much as 15 degrees Celsius. These ingenious techniques made the people of the Andes some of the earliest masters of bioengineering, and meant that their farmers could practice a strategy of resilience through diversity. The people of the Andes cultivated more than a thousand varieties of potato and over 150 varieties of maize. They would sometimes plant as many as 200 varieties of potato in a single field, each with different levels of frost resistance, different levels of drought resilience, and immune to different blights. These foods could be naturally freeze-dried in the cold, dry mountain air, allowing them to be stored for years on end, and ensuring that even in the immensely changeable environment of the Andes, any crisis could be ridden out. The cryptic indigenous document, known as the Warochiri Manuscript, pays tribute to the hard work of these ancient ancestors, who made the rocky landscape of the Andes bloom. In very ancient times, when a great number of people had filled the land, they lived miserably, scratching and digging the rock faces and ledges to make the terraced fields. These fields, some small, others large, are still visible today on all the rocky heights. And it wasn't only in the realm of terrace building that the Wari passed on their knowledge to the Inca. They also pioneered the kind of administrative empire that would lay the blueprint for what the Inca achieved. In every new town and city that the Wari folded into their empire, they built an administrative building built to a standard plan, suggesting a high degree of centralization in the empire. The imperial power of the Wari lasted for more than 400 years. But for reasons we can never entirely know, around the year 1000, it rapidly came apart. By the year 1100, all of the major Wari centers were abandoned and never reoccupied. The Wari Empire passed into dust, but its legacy continued. The Wari had introduced the idea of an empire that would unite the territories of the Andes, and now some of their former client states would try their hand at taking up their mantle. What followed was centuries of fragmentation and warfare in the mountains, as rival states competed to fill the power vacuum that the Wari had left behind. From these wars, the Inca would rise. They would model themselves both culturally and politically on the Wari, even dressing their nobles in woven tunics descended from Wari traditional dress. They built their imperial capital of Cusco, modeled on the Wari cities, 
And all of this was designed to send a clear message. The days of chaos are coming to an end. The heirs of the old empire have arrived to bring order once more. And these heirs are the people of the Inca. I want to take a moment here to discuss the sources available to us. The Inca never developed a written language, and so kept no written records. They recorded their extensive epic poetry, their messages and administrative information in a remarkable system of rope knots known as quipus. These quipu used knots of different sizes, positions and colors to represent different information, and these could be decoded by people initiated in their art, who were known as quipu camayocs. One early eyewitness, named Hernando Pizarro, records seeing these quipu camayocs at their mysterious work. They count by certain knots on cords and so record what each chief has brought. When they had to bring us loads of fuel, maize, chicha or meat, they took off knots or made knots on some other part so that those who have charge of the stores keep an exact account. These quipu have never been deciphered in modern times, and it's unclear how much information they actually encoded. It's possible that they were used as memory joggers, which could help someone to recite poetry or messages they had committed to memory. If you had to remember hundreds of lines of poetry by heart, you can imagine that it might help to write down the first word or letter in each line. And it's possible that the quipu operated in something like this way. But this means that the quipu isn't much good unless the person who created it is there to decipher it. And in the years since the fall of Inca society, the knowledge of how to read the quipu has been lost. This means that the earliest documents we have to learn from were made by Europeans and were written during their invasion of the Inca lands. These sources generally fall into three categories. These are eyewitness accounts in the form of Spanish chronicles and memoirs, accounts written after the conquest by Spaniards and other Europeans, and finally, the accounts of native authors in the decades following the conquest who were trained to write in Spanish schools. The Catholic Church also kept voluminous records about Inca culture, beliefs and religious practices. Somewhat ironically, these accounts were designed to make these practices easier to eradicate. But today, they form some of the most useful documents for understanding the lives and beliefs of these ancient people. There are only six known eyewitness accounts of the Inca at the time of the Spanish contact. Four of these were written immediately after the conquest. They are vivid and detailed, but of course are coloured by the world views of their authors and the role they played in the destruction of Inca society. Two further eyewitness accounts were written many decades after the conquest and are generally considered less reliable. 
There's also a huge confusion of secondary sources, written by people who didn't witness the events of the conquest and simply interviewed others, and many of these are considered highly unreliable. But a couple do stand out. One of these is the Spaniard Juan de Patanzos, He was one of the few Spaniards who became fluent in the Inca language of Quechua and married an Inca princess who had quite astonishingly also been previously married to both of the great players in this drama, the last Inca king Atahualpa and the Spanish conquistador Pizarro. Betanzos' knowledge of the Inca language, his interviews with his wife, and his exceptional understanding of the culture of the Andes led to a book called The Narrative of the Incas, which relates Inca history as told to him by his wife's people. Another crucial account is that of Pedro Cieza de Leon, a Spanish Jew who had converted to Christianity in order to be allowed to travel to the New World and become a conquistador. He wrote down a number of remarkable documents known as the Chronicles of the Inca, in which he documents everything he could learn about how the Inca people thought of their own history. But he makes no secret of the fragmentary and unreliable nature of some of what he heard, as he writes in one of his chapters. These Indians have no letters and can only preserve their history by the memory of events handed down from generation to generation and by their songs and keepings. I say this because their narratives vary in many particulars, some saying one thing and others giving a different version. Indigenous accounts are often fraught and difficult to interpret. One remarkable hybrid document was dictated by the Inca king named Taitu Kusi, who, after the conquest, narrated his first-hand account of the Spanish invasion to a missionary named Fray Marcos Garcia. The resulting book is called An Inca Account of the Conquest of Peru, and was published nearly 40 years after contact in 1570. This document captures an incredible snapshot of the confusion and fear of first contact. But even Taito Kuti recognizes the difficulty in accurately reporting events from so long ago. As the memory of man is frail and weak, it would be impossible to remember everything accurately with regard to all our great and important affairs unless we avail ourselves of writing. And one final document, known as the Warochiri Manuscript, gives us just a glimpse into the lives and beliefs of these Andean peoples prior to contact with Europeans. The book was compiled in the 16th century, a full 70 years after contact, and under the supervision of the Spanish cleric Francisco de Avila, who believed the people of the Andes to be engaged in devil worship. But despite these complications in its creation, the book does attempt to record all that the surviving Andean people of Warochiri province remembered about the myths, religious notions, and traditions of their people. 
and paints a vivid picture of what life was like for people like the Incas. Together, these fraught and difficult accounts come together to paint a picture of what happened to bring South America's largest empire crashing down. In the Inca conception of their own history, their story began with a small band of Highlanders who migrated to a place called Cusco, a warm valley in the highlands of southern Peru. This valley is around 40 kilometers long and drained by the Watanay River. We don't know when this band of settlers may have arrived, or even if this event happened at all, but estimates for when it may have been usually land around the year 1200. In Europe at the time, the English crusader king Richard the Lionheart had just died, passing the throne to the infamous King John. To the east, Minamoto no Yoritomo, the first shogun of Japan, had toppled the emperor and turned himself into a military dictator. And somewhere in the high Andes, a band of travelers settled down in a place that they would soon call home. The Inca creation myth describes the scenes that these first migrants would have seen upon their arrival. In the place which is called today the great city of Cusco, there was a small town of about 30 small, humble straw houses. The rest of the area around this town was a marsh of sedge with sharp-edged leaves. Houses of this time were built in rough stone, carved into well-fitted but irregular shapes, and thatched with a kind of mountain grass known as Hitchi which grows up to a meter tall in the mountains, above an altitude of three and a half kilometers. The straw from this grass was used for a wide variety of purposes by the Inca, and was gathered as soon as the rainy season ended in May. The name of the new Inca capital, Cusco, comes from the Quechua name, Cusco Wancar, or the Rock of the Owl. The site of Cusco, had long stood at the crossroads of empires. It lay right at the point where the territories of the Wari and the Tiwanaku had crossed, meaning that it benefited from both of their influences and formed a kind of hybrid culture. According to one legend, the story of the Inca people began when a cave opened up in this region, and four men, all brothers, walked out of it along with their wives. One of these was named Aya Oche. Then Aya Oche stood up, displayed a pair of large wings, and said he should be the one to stay at Guanacalre as an idol in order to speak with their father, the sun. Then they went up on top of the hill. Aya Oche raised up his flight toward the heavens so high that they could not see him. The sun had ordered him to go to the town that they had seen. There, they would find good company among the inhabitants of the town. After this had been stated, Ayarotte turned into a stone, just as he was with his wings. There, Manco Tapas and his companion, with the help of the four women, made a house. Having done this, Manco Tapas planted some land with maize. Another origin myth 
states that the Inca began on an island in Lake Titicaca and were then given the task of civilizing the There's world to be a pyramid. the Andes. They then migrated the northward to the site of Cusco, using a golden star to test the ground everywhere they went. On arrival in Cusco, the star sank into the ground, and they knew that this would be the place they would call home. Wherever they really originated, these stories give us a glimpse of how the Inca viewed themselves. This is an image we might find familiar from countless other empires throughout history. They believed that it was their destiny to expand and conquer, and to bring civilization to the people that surrounded them. And their achievements were remarkable. They would soon embark on a rapid expansion that would see them grow to become the greatest empire ever seen in the Western Hemisphere in what may have been as little as 50 to 80 years. The Inca credit this expansion to the work of one great king, a man called Hatakuti Inca Yapanqui. In Quechua, his name means he who overturns time and space. And according to traditional understanding, Pachacuti was a figure something like Alexander the Great, a conqueror of unmatched skill and energy. If the Inca chronicles are to be taken as fact, then during his reign, Cusco grew from a small town into the capital of an empire that covered nearly the whole of Western South America. Pachacuti was born in Cusco, in the palace known as the Cusicancha. As he grew up, he would have gazed out over the hills as the sun washed the grassy valley sides and watched birds fly over the yellow thatched rooftops of the city. And perhaps it's here that he began to dream of what a power this city could one day become. As a boy, it's recorded that he learned history, laws, and language, but Pachacuti was not intended for the throne. That honor lay with his older brother, Urko, who his father had named as his heir. But Pachacuti's time would come when the Inca faced a desperate threat. Sometime in the early 15th century, a people known as the Chanka invaded the land of Cusco. Their armies marched into the fertile valley and surrounded the capital. Pachacuti's father, the king, and his brother, the crown prince, both fled, believing the city to be lost. But Pachacuti stayed behind. The Inca army must have been on the verge of desertion, but according to the story, Pachacuti stood up on the wall and rallied the Inca soldiers behind him. When the Chanka fell on the city walls, he led them in a bitter defense and against all the odds managed to repel the invaders. It's said that Pachacuti fought so fiercely that even the stones of the mountains rose up to fight the Chanka invaders. Reading between the lines, I think it's possible that the Chanka army was caught up in one of the frequent earthquakes and landslides that rocked this region, and this may have contributed to the failure of their invasion. Whatever the cause, 
Patrick's victory was so celebrated that his father had little choice but to name him his successor around the year 1438. <laughs> From the moment he became king, Patrakuti embarked on a series of grand construction projects, rebuilding Cusco after the war with the Chanka and turning it into a city that would be the envy of the entire region. And he led his inspired Inca army in an astonishing series of victories that stretched their territory even further. Part of Pachacuti's success seems to have been that wherever he conquered, he also built. He constructed vast irrigation channels and cultivated terraces in every territory he expanded into. And during his reign, the road system of the Inca expanded dramatically until it stretched more than 5,000 kilometers from Ecuador to Chile, allowing his army to travel quickly to wherever it needed. Cieza de Leon describes this ambitious building work in his Chronicles of the Inca. The empire of Peru is so vast that the Incas ordered a road to be made. There were built from half-league to half-league small houses, well-roofed with wood and straw, lining the roads at regular intervals. The order was that in each house there should be two Indians with provisions stationed there by the neighboring villages. In this way, the lords were kept informed of all that happened in every part of the empire, and they arranged all that was needful for the ordering of the government. Milestones were placed about every seven kilometers along these roads, marking the distances to the next city for weary travelers. And the Emperor Pachacuti was also a poet, with many traditional Inca poems attributed to him. Among these are hymns to the god Viracocha, asking for blessings for his people. Lord Viracocha, who says, Let there be day, let there be night, who says, Let there be dawn, let it grow light, who makes the sun, your sun, move happy and blessed every day, so that man whom you have made has light. But Pachacuti was also capable of extremely ruthless tactics. As the Inca Empire expanded, peoples who repeatedly refused to bow to his rule were forcefully relocated, dragged from their homes by Inca soldiers, and sent to far-flung corners of the empire as colonists. But the expansion of the Inca Empire was not always violent. Pachacuti relied on an intricate intelligence network of spies and informants who would infiltrate neighboring states and bring back reports to him on their power and wealth. He would then send messages to the rulers of these kingdoms and send them luxurious gifts such as high-quality textiles and coca leaves, as Cieza de Leon recalls. 
as they always arranged matters in the commencement of their negotiations, so that things should be pleasantly and not partially ordered. They marched from Kuzco with their army and warlike material until they were near the region they intended to conquer. Then they collected very complete information touching the power of the enemy. The Inca sent special messengers to the enemy to say that he desired to have them as allies and relations, so that with joyful hearts and willing minds, they ought to come forth to receive him in their province and give him obedience, as in the other provinces. And that they might do this of their own accord, he sent presents to the native chiefs. The promise of this gesture was clear. Join the Inca Empire, and I will make you rich beyond your wildest dreams. It seems that most of the neighboring rulers accepted this offer and were peacefully folded into the empire. But it wasn't without an implicit threat. Refusal to accept Inca rule resulted in an invasion, and any rulers who resisted were executed without exception. The Inca army at this time was fearsome force. Any commoner could be conscripted as part of the Inca system of organized labor, and every able-bodied man was expected to take part in a war, at least in some capacity, at least once in their life. And the Inca army could reach the astonishing size of 140,000 men. The Inca had no iron or steel, and had no real technological advantage over other cultures in the Andes, so they often relied simply on their sheer force of numbers to overwhelm their opponents. Their weapons were hardwood spears launched using spear throwers, arrows and javelins, slings, as well as clubs and maces made from the hard wood of the chonta palm, with blunt or spiked heads made of copper or bronze. They wore armor made of wood and animal skin, sometimes lined with these metals. And on their backs, warriors wore small round shields made of woven palm wood flats and cotton. Their favorite tactic was to ambush their enemy in steep valleys, rolling rocks down the hillside and trapping them in avalanches. They would march into battle to the beating of drums, the blowing of trumpets made of wood, conch shells, or horns. The army must have made a tremendous sight when it all massed together and marched off to war. And it's not hard to see why many kingdoms elected to take the Inca paycheck rather than face them in battle. The logistical network that supported the army was no less impressive. Inca soldiers marched along immaculately maintained highways through the mountains, over bridges across the towering gorges. Along the road, they were sheltered in barrack-like shelters called tambos, and were fed from the well-supplied storehouses called colcas. Because of this talent for organization, the Inca army was able to move faster and amass a greater force than any of their rivals. Once the Inca had taken control of a town, whether peacefully or by force, they would always build one of their large fortified storehouses, or colcas, just outside it. These they would fill with food, 
freeze-dried potatoes and corn, beans, dried meats and other long-lasting foods, as well as clothing, blankets and shawls, even sandals, which would then be distributed to the population. The capacity of this storage system was staggering. In just one region known as the Mantaro Basin, there were nearly 3,000 of these storehouses, with a capacity of 170,000 cubic meters, or around 70 Olympic swimming pools. These Kolka storehouses were always placed in ostentatious positions, on top of hills or on the side of cliffs, so that everyone in the valley below could see them. The message they were designed to convey was clear. You are now part of the Inca Empire. The Empire will provide for you. All your troubles are over. I use Febreze Fade to Plus. And I use this. Febreze has a microchip to control scent release, so it smells first day fresh for 50 days. 50 days? And it's refill reminder lightning. Oh, never miss a day of freshness. As part of their policy of expansion, the Inca practiced an incredibly inclusive attitude to religion. Like everything else, religious belief in this region was incredibly diverse. The Warochiri manuscript records some of the extreme variations from town to town in the midst of this one goddess, how she relates to other gods and mythical figures. In each village, and even region by region, People give different versions, and different names too. People from Mama say one thing and the Cheka say another. Some call Chauki Namka the sister of Puriya Kaka. Others say she was Tanta Namka's daughter. Others still say she was the son's daughter. So it is impossible to decide. In this atmosphere of extreme religious diversity, the Incas saw benefit to absorbing the gods of others into their pantheon. In territories they conquered, local religions and cults were allowed to continue, and where possible were actually folded into the existing mythos of the Inca. When they conquered the people of Guarachiri province, they happily took on their god named Pachacama. He became a god of the Inca too, although of course the creator god Viracocha kept his prime position. In the Warochiri manuscript, the people of this province even attribute many victories of Inca to the help of their god and his son, Makawisa. When Tupac Inca Yupanqui was king, they say he first conquered all the provinces, then rested happily for many years. But then, enemy rebellions arose in some provinces. These people didn't want to be the people of the Inca. The Inca mobilized many thousands of men and battled them for a period of 12 years. The Inca, breathing deeply, said, what will become of us? He became very downhearted. One day, he thought to himself, 
Why do I serve all these gods with my gold and my silver? Enough! I'll call them to help me against my enemies. Makawisa arrived and sat at the end of the gathering. The Inca king goes on to plead with the gods to help him in putting down these rebellions. Some of them make excuses, telling him that they are too powerful, and their fury would destroy not just the rebellious provinces, but the entire land. But soon, the Warotu god, Makawisa, speaks up. Inca, midday sun, I will go there. I'll go and subdue them for you right away, once and for all. As soon as they brought him up a hill, Makawisa began to rain upon them. Makawisa reduced all those villages to eroded chasms by flashing lightning and pouring down more rain and washing them away in a mudslide. Striking with lightning bolts, he exterminated all the great lords and other strong men. Only a few of the common people were spared. The result of this miraculous intervention is that the Warotiri god is welcomed with open arms into the Inca religious system. From that time onwards, the Inca revered Pariacaca even more, and got him 50 of his retainers. This open-mindedness allows the Inca to incorporate a vast and diverse range of people into their empire, and expand rapidly. When they conquered the lands of the central Peruvian coast around the year 1470, they took one great temple to the god Pachacamac that contained a famous oracle. During their occupation of the area, they allowed the temple's priests to continue worshipping their own god, although they did add an additional few buildings to allow worship of Inca gods like Viracocha to take place there as well. And of course, one of the most remarkable outposts that the Emperor Pachacuti built is the one that opened this episode. Around the year 1440, he ordered the construction of the outpost in the Peruvian cloud forest that would one day be known as Machu Picchu, perched on a mountain ridge rising half a kilometer above the valley floor, with steep cliffs plunging down on either side. It's not clear exactly what this town was designed for, it was never self-sufficient, relying on constant supplies ferried up to it from the valley floor, and so it must have served a very specific purpose. Some believe it may have been a royal retreat, chosen for the beauty of its location, while others argue that it may have been a plantation or trading post for high-value commodities like coca leaves, which the Inca chewed and brewed into tea for a mild narcotic effect. More than a hundred steps of white granite connect the town's temples and houses, its water reservoirs, terraces, and its temple to the sun. In its day, it must have been a magnificent sight, with its rooftops of Ichu's thatch gleaming bright in the sun, its fields overflowing with corn and potatoes, while herds of llama zigzag up the narrow mountain roads to supply it with all the necessities of life, and the clouds rolling endlessly over its grassy slopes. The 
reign of the great king Pachacuti saw the kingdom of Cusco reorganized into an entity known by its people as Kawantinsuyu. In Quechua, this means four regions together, and has been translated as something like the realm of the four parts, or the land of the four quarters. This was now a stable imperial state, made up of a central government, ruling over four provincial governments, Chinchasuyu in the northwest, Antisuyu in the northeast, Kuntisuyu in the south, and Kulasuyu in the southeast. The roads leading to each of these four provinces all met at a crossroads in the central plaza of the city of Cusco, where the babble of dozens of languages would have been heard on the streets. In Quechua, the word Inca meant Lord, and at this time it also began to be used about the particular ethnic group or caste that ruled the empire from the city of Cusco. It's not clear how many of these people there may have been, but estimates range from about 15,000 to 40,000. But they would soon rule over an empire of more than 10 million people. And the king who reigned in Cusco would soon be known as the Sapa Inca, or the Lord without equal. As with many aspects of folkloric history, it's possible that Pachacuti's achievements have been exaggerated. Mythical retellings of history naturally tend towards what's called the great man theory of history. Simply put, it just makes a better story to imagine that one hero is responsible for the construction of an empire. It's possible that Inca expansion should actually be credited to the reign of several kings and with various less glamorous economic and social developments. But whether this is true or not, Pachacuti's name would forever be inscribed in the memory of the people of the Andes. This great poet king of the Inca died around the year 1471, and on his deathbed he is said to have uttered the following lament. I was born as a lily in the garden, and like the lily I grew. As my age advanced, I became old and had to die, and so I withered and died. The son of Pachacuti, a man named Topa Inca, followed in his father's footsteps to expand the empire even further, until only one true rival existed in the region a people known as the Chimu. These were a desert people who built the vast triangular mud brick city of Chanchan on the coast of northern Peru. The Chimu had grown rich, diving for the highly prized shells of the mollusk Bondylus that thrived off their desert coast. Their divers paddled out in boats and sank to the bottom of the ocean with stones tied to their feet, holding their breath for minutes at a time beneath the waves. Whole sections of the Chimu city of Shanshan were given over to the industry of shell production, where the mollusks were cleaned out, the shells were polished and carved, and from there distributed and sold to the whole region. 
The Timu dressed their priests and kings in remarkable gold decorations and were perhaps the last powerful rivals to the Inca. But by the year 1470, the Timu too were conquered and Inca power in the region was now all but unchallenged. At Cusco, the Inca celebrated their imperial ascendancy with the construction of an enormous ceremonial center, as well as an imposing structure that they called the Puma's Head, or in Quechua, Sacte Woman. We don't know entirely the function of this structure. Due to its towering walls, later European observers would refer to it as a fortress, but it may have also served a religious function. Sacte Woman was the largest megalithic structure ever built in the Western Hemisphere. Its walls are built of vast interlocking stones, carved so perfectly that they fit together without mortar, so closely that it's impossible to fit even a pin between them. Centuries of expertise at stone carving culminated here in some of the finest stoneworking ever seen slaved over by vast work gangs of conscripted laborers. We can only guess at the enormous human cost that moving these stones must have incurred. The Inca moved them without pack animals, using only mats of wooden logs and ropes, and the muscle power of thousands of workers. One 16th century Spanish observer, Pedro Pizarro, would later write an eyewitness account of what Sacre Roman must have looked like in its golden age. On top of the hill, they had a very strong fort, surrounded with masonry walls of stone and having two very high round towers. And in the lower part of this wall, there were stones so large and thick that it seemed impossible that human hands could set them in place. They were so close together and so well fitted that the point of the pin could not be inserted in one of the joints. The whole fortress was built up in characters and flat spaces. The estimated volume of stone used in its construction is over 6,000 cubic meters. Estimates for the weight of the largest andesite block go as high as 200 tons, or about 100 times the weight of the average stone used to build the pyramid of Giza. The closeness of the stones and their lack of regular order are thought to be an adaptation developed over centuries to help these walls survive the devastating earthquakes that regularly rock the coastal region. It's said that during an earthquake, the stones of these walls dance in their place, jittering and juddering, but always falling back to where they began. Cusco wasn't a city in the way we think of one, as a center of trade. There were no markets or squares, no workshops or places of business. It was forbidden for foreigners and commoners to stay in the city overnight, and it was home purely to the temples and priests, as well as the king in his palace and the officials of the empire. At its heart was the Coricancha, or the Golden Enclosure, what the Spanish would refer to later as the Temple of the Sun. This was the spiritual and ceremonial heart of the empire, 
and during the most important rituals, the mummified remains of dead emperors would be brought out into the main square, where crowds of thousands would come to see them. The chronicler Pedro de Fiega de Leon recorded the magnificence of the Corrientes' appearance based on the evidence given to him by Cusco's surviving Inca princes and the few remaining eyewitnesses who had seen the temple in its glory days. Its circumference is some 400 paces, surrounded by a high wall of the finest masonry and precision. In all Spain, I have not seen anything to compare to these walls, nor the placement of their stones. The stone is somewhat black in color, rough, yet excellently cut. At mid-height runs a band of gold, of some 17 inches in width, and two in depth. The doors and arches are also embossed with sheets of this metal. In one of these houses, the grandest of all, was the figure of the sun, of great size and made of gold, and encased with precious stones. There also were placed the mummies of the Incas, who had reigns in Cusco, each surrounded by a great quantity of treasure. From its seat at Cusco, the Inca Empire expanded until it encompassed a truly vast expanse of territory and ruled over as many as 12 million people. This enormous swathe of land was nearly 10 times the size of the Aztec Empire in Mexico, with twice the estimated population. At 2 million square kilometers, it covered a landmass equal to the Western Roman Empire in Europe and the Qin Empire in China. It reached as far north as the jungles of southern Colombia and stretched south over barren coastal deserts and snowy mountains to about 100 kilometers south of Santiago in central Chile. It was actually one of the few empires in history to ever stretch so far from north to south. Most powers stretched horizontally from east to west in the same direction as the planet's rotation. And the reasons for that aren't hard to see. Most cultures prefer not to go too far outside the climate they're used to. In the northern hemisphere, that means if you go north, things get colder and darker. And as you go south, things get hotter. But going east or west doesn't tend to change the climate all that much. But the Inca bucks that trend. Their empire stretches from north to south for an astonishing 4,000 kilometers, or about a tenth of the way around the globe. In Europe, it is enough to stretch from the snowy tundras and icy glaciers of Iceland down to the baking desert sands of the Western Sahara. In North America, this would get you from Canada's Hudson Bay, where polar bears wander across the frozen waters, down to the balmy beaches of Jamaica. But in the Andes, it's the mountains themselves that form the largest consistent environment. And it's across these that the empire of the Inca spread. The Inca were deeply suspicious of the Amazon rainforest and the foothills that descended down into it. They called this region Rupa Rupa, meaning hot, hot, which gives you a sense of how they felt about it. The hills that looked out over the forest 
are known as the eyebrow of the jungle, jutting out as they do over the cloud forest below. The Inca tended to keep well clear of the rainforest's dark, shady depths. They traded with its people for brightly coloured macaw feathers, and on a number of occasions seemed to have attempted to spread their empire down into the forest with military power. But what little information we have about these expeditions tells us that they invariably met with disaster. But the Inca were fascinated by this place, by the exotic animals and plants that flourished in the Amazon basin. The jaguars, snakes, and tropical birds of the jungle appear constantly in Inca art, high up in their mountains. The Inca economy is one of the most fascinating aspects of their society. To the extent that we can fit its structure into modern definitions, many have described it as an early example of state socialism, or even communism. As far as we can tell, the idea of private property didn't exist in Inca society, and they progressed on the basis of shared ownership of assets, resources, and the means of production. When an Inca couple got married, they were given a house and a plot of land by the state, which they would use to produce enough food to support themselves. The state provided them with seeds and tools, and whenever the couple had a child, they were given another bit of land to help feed it. Each family was also provided with two and also produced manure for their fields. In return, the family would give over all the food they didn't eat into the common storehouse. Instead of taxes, they contributed directly with labor, agreeing to perform a service known as mitar whenever called upon. This would involve laboring. This is the Inca Cities in the Cloud, part two of two fall of civilizations. Anyway, thanks for uh, tuning in. Welcome back to the Teresa for Governator show. I cover all the pro-democracy podcasts as well as ancient history, which is what we are looking at right now. This is episode 12, The Inca Cities in the Cloud, part 2, Fall of Civilizations. Paul and Cooper. Paul and Cooper. Great research. Fantastic research. We've already spoken a little about the great man model of history when telling the story of Pachacuti's remarkable conquest of the Andes. The great man theory was an idea that gained currency in the 19th century and argued that history was a product of the impact of great men, unique individuals who were highly influential due to their natural abilities, their heroic courage, or their superior intellect. This is a model that, for good reason, has fallen out of favor among historians, but it can still be hard to explain certain moments in history where events really did seem to turn on the determination and sometimes the obsession 
of a single person. In this story, that person will be a Spaniard by the name of Francisco Pizarro. Pizarro was born in the Extremadura region of southeastern Spain, a region whose name comes from the Latin phrase extrema et dura, that is, remote and hard. And it gives you a pretty good idea of what life was like here through most of its history. The land was dry and tough in the summer, and the people here were often poor. Pizarro was born in the most humble conditions imaginable. There are no official documents recording his birth, suggesting that he may have been an illegitimate child, perhaps abandoned and taken in by his adoptive family of peasant farmers. <coughs> his adopted mother worked as a servant, while his father was a soldier who had earned himself the nickname the Roman for his exploits fighting in Italy. Pizarro had no education and began his life herding pigs in the town of Trujillo. As a teenager, he joined the army, Trujillo. wanting to follow in his father's footsteps. And he was immediately swept up in the campaign known as the Reconquista, or the Reconquest. This saw the Muslim kingdoms of southern Spain conquered by Spanish armies and brought under the rule of a Spanish monarch. We don't know exactly where Pizarro fought on this campaign, but it's likely that he saw some of these famous battles and may have even participated in the capture of the final Muslim capital of Granada. The mythology of the Reconquista has a prominent place in the imaginations of Spanish people around this time, and the Spanish would carry it with them into the New World. In fact, Whenever Pizarro and his men encountered the temples of the Inca and other peoples, they would refer to them in their writing as mosques. When the dust from the War of Reconquista settled, and the financial opportunities for mercenaries began to dry up in Spain, Pizarro made the decision to cross over to the New World. In the year 1502, he sailed to Hispaniola, the island that had become the first European foothold in the Americas. There he became a member of the governor's bodyguard and earned a reputation as a woodsman and a fierce fighter of native people. Pizarro had a character that was well suited to the brutal world of the Spanish colonies. He earned a considerable fortune as a slaver, a plantation owner and a trader. In the New World, Pizarro achieved a level of wealth and status that would have been impossible in Spain, where the entrenched class system meant he would always be treated as a peasant. The New World suited him. He seems to have fostered no desire to ever return to his homeland, and instead spent his days surrounded by slave women and all the trappings of wealth in the New World. But it's clear there was also something of an itch in him, that his life there couldn't quite scratch. It seems he wanted not just to be wealthy and comfortable, but to be respected, even feared. 
He wanted an achievement that he could throw in the faces of all those nobles back home who once would have looked down on him from such a height. But all of Pizarro's early attempts at adventuring would meet with disastrous failure. He set off on a number of different expeditions into the New World, among them one led by the Spaniard Alonso de Ojeda, who set up a colony in what is today Colombia and Venezuela. Pizarro was paid no wage for the expedition, instead being promised a percentage of the total treasure that the expedition brought back. But Ojeda's expedition was poorly managed. The colony of San Sebastian that they founded was built in a low-lying swampy region, beset with mosquitoes and disease. These were the same conditions that had caused the Inca armies of the Emperor Huayna Capac such difficulties. The indigenous people here regularly shot at the Spanish with arrows dipped in poison, and the colony offered no wealth, no gold or silver, and barely supported the meagre existence of its colonists. San Sebastian was eventually abandoned, and Pizarro soon discovered that it's not much use having a percentage of the expedition's earnings if its earnings are roughly zero. Disconsolate but not discouraged, he soon departed for Colombia, and from there joined the explorer Vasco Núñez de Balboa and sailed to modern-day Panama. Although the Spanish didn't know it yet, this was the thinnest point of the American continent. Here, the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans are only 50 kilometers apart, and it's at this crossing point between the oceans that the destiny of Pizarro and the fate of the Inca would be sealed. Balboa and Pizarro set about the settlement of Panama with the usual destruction and enslavement that accompanied all European settlements in the New World. There they set up the colony of Tierra Firme, but still no one knew how much land existed behind the long coast of the Americas. It's recorded that one local chief called Comogre seems to have decided to cooperate with them and offered to pay them off in both gold and information. It's here that the Spaniards first heard of the existence of another ocean to the west. As one Spanish conquistador, Pascal de Andagoya, recalls in this letter to the Spanish king. They say that the people of the other coast are very good and well-mannered. And I am told that the other sea is very good for canoe navigation, for that it is always smooth and never rough like the sea on this side, according to the Indians. I believe that there are many islands in that sea. They say that there are many large pearls, and that the chiefs have baskets of them. In one version of the story, the chief Camogre's son is said to have burst out in a rage when the Spanish kept demanding gold from his father and let out this fuming proclamation. 
If you are so hungry for gold that you leave your lands to cause strife in those of others, I shall show you a province where you can quell this hunger. The idea of a mythical city of gold lying just beyond the horizon was a common theme of the Spanish settlement of the Americas. The king of this place became known as El Hombre Dorado, or El Rey Dorado, the golden man or king. This was a mythical character who was supposed to bathe himself in gold dust. And over time, the legend became more outlandish, until El Dorado went from being a man to a whole city, then a kingdom, and finally an entire empire of gold. And Maybe it's not El Dorado was just a way to get the uh, colonizers to move on. Whenever native people discovered the European obsession with the precious metal gold, they would often assure them that there was plenty of gold just over the next hill. If only they would pack up and leave them in peace. Whether Comogre and his son really knew about the Inca and the gold that decorated their temples high in the Andes, or whether they were just trying to get the Spanish to move on, we can never know. But the result was the same. Balboa organized an expedition to cross the Isthmus of Panama and reach what he called the Other Sea. Pizarro was a captain of this expedition. Hacking their way through the dense jungle of the interior of Panama, thick with mangroves, vines, and strangler figs, the conquistadors nearly cooked in their armor. They were plagued by mosquitoes and disease, but finally they cut through the last bit of jungle and saw a vast body of water stretching out, boundless and blue into the horizon. The life of a conquistador in the New World was violent and ruthless. They lived largely beyond the reach of the law, and often the greatest dangers came from the other conquistadors around them. Hmm. Pizarro had been Balboa's friend for many years, but when the opportunity came to betray him, he didn't hesitate. In one of the routine power struggles that took place here at the edge of the world, Pizarro was ordered to arrest Balboa. The man was later executed. For his services in this coup, Pizarro was given a swampy bit of land to call his own, and he settled down to the life of a colonial baron. He retired from soldiering, and perhaps this is where he might have stayed. That is, if it wasn't for the news that would soon come trickling down the coast from Mexico about the incredible exploits of one of his distant cousins, a man named Hernán Cortés, who had taken 600 men and with them toppled an empire. For many historians, the comparisons between Francisco Pizarro and Hernán Cortés are obvious. As we saw in episode 9, Cortes had led a tiny army and with them captured the Aztec king, Moctezuma, toppling the greatest indigenous empire of Mexico. Cortes was now considered a hero in the Spanish court and his exploits were legendary. Pizarro was a second cousin of Cortes, 
and seven years older than him, and he openly admired his overachieving relation. They were both from that same hard region of Extremadura in Spain, and had both set sail to explore the new world, living in Hispaniola at the same time. But there are also some significant differences in these characters, as the historian W.H. Prescott recounts. Pizarro seems to have had the example of his great predecessor before his eyes on more than one occasion. But he fell far short of his model, for his coarser nature and more ferocious temper often betrayed him into acts most repugnant to sound policy, which would never have been countenanced by the conqueror of Mexico. Cortez was a member of the noble Hidalgo class. He had a legal education and worked as a notary and treasurer. The letters he wrote to King Charles V are one of the great sources of information about the conquest of Mexico. And while we may not always trust his account of events, he does speak to us out of history with a commanding voice, explaining his motivations, his desires and fears. But Pizarro is more of an enigma. In fact, he was illiterate and could neither read nor write. All we learn about his motivation comes from those who accompanied him and wrote down their accounts. By the year 1521, the great Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan had been conquered by the Spanish and reduced to a smoking ruin. All of Spain and its colonies were buzzing with this news and the fame and wealth that Cortes won in this expedition seems to have reignited Pizarro's lust for adventure. By this time, he was in middle age. From depictions of him at the time, we can see he was a man with a thick beard and a flat face with wide, spreading cheekbones and a lantern jaw. His cousin Pedro Pizarro described him in the following way. He was a very Christian man, and very zealous in the service of his majesty. He was tall and fair, having a good face of a thin Personally, he was valiant and vigorous. A super man. It was his custom whenever anyone asked him for anything, always to say no. He said this in order that he might not fail to keep his word. And though he said no, he always did in the end what was asked of him, if there were not reason against it. In 1522, just one year after he heard news of Cortez's exploits, Pizarro returned to adventuring. He joined a company heading south along Panama's Pacific coast, determined to find out the truth about the rumored cities of gold that were supposed to lie to the south, in a land that had attained a semi-mythical status for them, and which was called Peru. While Cortez's expedition had been a relatively amateur affair with very few professional soldiers, Pizarro's men were even more of a rough bunch. He had about a hundred men with him, many of whom signed up to escape debt or to avoid being put in jail for various crimes. These were stragglers and ruffians rather than soldiers. They had enough money for only two ships, and they set sail in November 1524. 
It was the worst possible season for sea travel, and Pizarro's usual bad luck prevailed. Rain and storm hammered their ship, and they quickly ran out of supplies. The men ate raw crabs and shellfish, as well as berries from the shore, which turned out to be poisonous and made them severely ill. Pizarro's expedition crept along the Pacific coast of South America for more than a year, experiencing misfortune after misfortune, with one of their ships making regular supply runs back to Panama. But eventually, in the year 1526, they came across something they had never seen before in the Americas. It was a native boat with a sail. When they stopped the craft, they found that the boat was a raft carrying 20 indigenous people, as well as a great variety of jewellery and cloth, and other decorative items like belts, necklaces and pins made of gold and silver and inlaid with gems. Their clothes were finely embroidered, decorated with patterns of birds, flowers and animals. The Spanish asked where these goods had come from, and the people gave the answer they had been waiting for. They said it had all come from a wealthy land that lay to the south, a land called Peru. The news lit a fire under Pizarro, but his men were sick and tired of the expedition. Their misfortunes continued, and soon news returned to them that the governor of Panama had ordered their return. When his men heard the news, they were overjoyed, as Cieza de Leon recalls. Pizarro was downcast when he saw they all wanted to go. He quietly composed himself and said that, of course, they could return to Panama, and the choice was theirs. He had not wanted them to leave, because they would have their reward if and when they discovered a good land. As for himself, he felt that returning poor to Panama was a harder thing than staying to face death and hardship. Pizarro shared something of Cortez's passion for dramatics, and one instance has passed into legend and idiom. He took his sword and drew a line in the sand and gave his men the following announcement. Friends and comrades, on that side are toil, hunger, nakedness, the drenching storm, desertion and death. On this side, ease and pleasure. There lies Peru with all its riches. Here, Panama and its poverty. Choose, each man, what best becomes a brave Spaniard. For my part, I go south. Most of Pizarro's men were not won over by this piece of oratory. <laughs> Only 13 men stepped over the line. But it was enough for his journey to continue. In the year 1528, Pizarro reached the Incan town of Tumbez, today located on the border between Ecuador and Peru. And here, finally, was evidence of the wealthy empire he had been promised. Tumbez was a magnificent port city. 
The old Inca king, Tupac Yapanqui, had built a strong fortress there, along with a fine temple staffed with 500 virgins who served the sun god. The town was well supplied with water from several aqueducts, and the historian W.H. Prescott recalls the reaction of the Spanish to this site. The Spaniards were nearly mad with joy at receiving these brilliant tidings of the Peruvian city. All their fond dreams were now to be realized, and they had at length reached the realm, which had so long fitted in visionary splendor before them. The people of Tumbez received Pizarro and his men politely and graciously. They even gave Pizarro two boys, who he took with him back to Panama and taught to speak Spanish. He would use them as translators throughout the following years. And all of this was very convenient for Pizarro, and played directly into his plan, as the chronicler Naaro recalled. It was manifestly the work of heaven that the natives of the country should have received him in so kind and loving a spirit as best fitted to facilitate the conquest. Encouraged and reeling from the magnitude of his discovery, Pizarro sailed further up the coast, and everywhere he saw small towns and coastal hamlets. Everywhere he went, the people told him that they were part of a great empire, whose capital lay far up in the high mountains. They told him stories of the glittering city of gold, where the great emperor Atahualpa ruled. They saw the enormous networks of aqueducts that made even the coastal deserts bloom and the well-maintained roads linking the settlements. Pizarro now felt that he had evidence enough to confirm the rumors, but his tiny force had no hope of making anything of his discovery. He returned to Panama and began to prepare for another final voyage. The arrival of the Spanish at Tumbez caused a ripple of consternation in the Inca land. The entire region was wracked by the destruction of the civil war that had followed the death of the Emperor Huayna Capac, along with the spreading plague that had brought such desolation. The Waro Chiri manuscript recalls the opportunistic struggle of this time with a note of disdain. After Wayna Kapak had died, the people scrambled for political power, each saying to their others, Me first! Me first! It was while they were carrying on this way that the Spanish appeared. The Inca ruler and chronicler named Taisukusi, who had been a boy at the time of the invasion, recounted his memories of that time in a remarkable document almost 30 years later. In it, he recalls the shock and confusion that the arrival of the Spanish caused as messengers burst into his father's palace with the news. They reported having observed that certain people had arrived in their land, people who were very different from us in custom and dress. When my father heard this, he was beside himself and said, how dare those people intrude into my country without my authorization and permission? Who are these people and what are their ways? The messengers answered, they claim to have come by the wind. 
They are bearded people, very beautiful and white. They eat out of silver plates. Even their sheep, who carry them, are large and wear silver shoes. They throw thunder like the sky. Taitu Kusi even captures what it was like to see the Spaniards reading for the first time. We have witnessed with our own eyes that they talk to white cloths by themselves <laughs> and that they call some of us by our names without having been informed by anyone and only looking into the sheets which they hold in front of them. <laughs> Another later chronicler, Father Bernabe Kobo, recounts similar scenes of fear and confusion. The messengers who were much alarmed and frightened as by something that they had never dreamed of told the Inca how some strange people never seen before had landed on the beach. These men were stuffed into their clothes which covered them from head to foot. They were white and had beards and a ferocious appearance. And when the Inca asked from what part of the world they had come, he was told that the messengers only knew that the strangers traveled across the sea in large wooden houses. As in the conquest of Mexico, Inca sources recall the appearance of signs and portents before the arrival of the Spanish. An eagle had been seen being attacked by condors above the main square of Cusco. Comets were sighted across the Andes and many had reported seeing a blood-red circle enveloping the moon. But no one knew what the arrival of these foreigners could mean. Making this Valentine's Day for everyone. Yeah, you of course, but also you. Let me make your day. You deserve a cap. And you. And you. In Panama, Pizarro finally sailed back into port to the astonishment of many of the people there. It had been more than 18 months since they'd last been heard from, and most had assumed that he and his meager crew had been lost at sea. But news of his discovery didn't create the explosion of interest that he had hoped. In fact, the governor of Panama refused him permission to go on any more expeditions. Pizarro was frustrated. The temptation of that faraway empire, along with all its gold and glory, began to possess him. We can imagine him lying awake at night in the hot Panama air, listening to the whining of mosquitoes overhead and the cackling of spider monkeys in the trees outside his cabin, all the while thinking about the glory that might await him far away on the shores of the other sea. In 1528, he decided to take a drastic course of action. He would make his way back to Spain with the intention of gaining an audience with the king and queen who ruled from their opulent court in Toledo. The journey across the Atlantic could take six weeks if the weather was good and as long as two to three months, if it wasn't. Since he had last been to Spain, Pizarro must have found it a much changed place. 
He had known it as a wealthy medieval state, but in the last three decades, it had become the bustling hub of a colonial empire. Its ports had swollen with the vast wealth coming in on its treasure ships, and now enormous thousand-ton galleons carrying hundreds of cannons would have towered over the roofs of its houses. To this rough peasant farmer, used to life on the frontiers, the exquisite finery of the royal court must have been staggering. It would have been an incredible moment for this poor swineherd, approaching the royal couple surrounded by their finery and given a hero's welcome. The conqueror of Mexico, Hernán Cortés, was at that time resident in the Spanish court, and his presence may have gone some way to sway the royal couple into meeting this man. Pizarro presented the king and queen with gold and jewels, exotic birds and embroidered cloth, even the fleece of a llama, along with a newly drawn map of Peru. The royal couple must have looked at these treasures carefully. The capture of Mexico only eight years before had swollen the royal treasury, and now this commoner was offering to conquer yet another indigenous empire and bring back even more treasure. In 1529, on July the 26th, the Queen of Spain signed a charter authorizing the invasion of Peru, which they had already decided to rename. Without the Inca having the slightest knowledge of it, their land had been renamed New Castile, with the stroke of a pen 10,000 kilometers away. <laughs> because you are Captain Francisco Pizarro, a resident of Tierra Ferme, called Castilla del Oro, you have taken the charge of going to conquer, discover, pacify, and populate the coast of the South Sea of said land to the eastern part. The Queen also made Pizarro a knight of the Order of Santiago, Spain's highest order of knighthood, established in the Middle Ages to protect pilgrims. He was effectively being appointed a crusader, and the crown gave Pizarro several Dominican monks to take with him to underscore that he was on a religious mission. They gave him a license to buy artillery in Panama as well as 25 horses from Jamaica and 30 African slaves from Cuba, their foreheads branded with the letter R, showing that they were royal possessions. But other than this, the monarchy offered no direct support, instead promising, as usual, that the men could keep a share of any loot that their campaign acquired. For them, Pizarro's expedition was low risk, and potentially very high reward. By January 1530, Pizarro had returned to Panama and prepared his expedition. He brought with him his 15-year-old cousin Pedro as an assistant, who would later write one of the most important eyewitness accounts of the invasion. But Pizarro had his usual run of bad luck on the voyage. Strong headwinds blowing up the Pacific coast stopped his progress for nearly two weeks, and storms ravaged their ships. 
but finally he arrived back at the port town of Tumbes. What he found there astonished him. The formerly booming town was now completely abandoned. Francisco Jerez recalls the eerie sight that the Spanish found. The town of Tumbes was destroyed. It seemed to have been an important place, judging from some edifices it contained. It had open courts and rooms, and doors for defense, and was a good fortress against Indians. The natives say that these edifices were abandoned by reason of a great pestilence, and by reason of the war. Only four or five of the largest houses and the walls of the fortress remained standing, and these were greatly damaged and looted of all their finery. When the Spanish landed, they managed to find some locals hiding nearby, who told them that in the civil war raging over the empire, Tumbez had been loyal to King Huascar in Cusco, and armies loyal to Atahualpa had punished them by destroying the town. Pizarro was distraught. He'd spent much of the tough voyage encouraging his men with stories of the rich town of Tumbez, and now it was nothing but a pile of rubble. He must have known that his position was precarious, and that his soldiers wouldn't remain loyal long if he couldn't show them results. He knew that the capital of a great empire lay somewhere up in the mountains, and after some time recuperating from the ruins of Tumbez, he resolved to march up into the hills and find it. Pizarro set out on the 16th of May, 1532, with a company of 187 men, made up of 62 cavalry and 102 foot soldiers three artillery operators with cannons, and twenty men with crossbows. Ahead of them lay a journey of more than two thousand kilometers, across harsh, arid deserts and snow-capped mountains. But the events that would lead to the final fall of the Inca Empire has now truly begun. It's not clear why Atahualpa allowed Pizarro to found his settlement on the coast or to march unhindered into the mountains. In the centuries since the conquest, many have proposed their theories. Some chroniclers at the time claimed that the Inca believed the Spanish to be gods. Some indigenous chronicles, like that of Taitu Kusi, repeated this idea. Although his account is full of flattery for the Spanish, and perhaps he can't entirely be trusted on this point. As we've seen in the conquest of Mexico and the Aztec Empire, there's really little first-hand evidence that indigenous people considered Europeans to be divine. And if this was their initial impression, it's one that they quickly dispensed with, as Dieza de Leon recalls. As these Spaniards were so free from all restraint, and held the honor of the people so lightly, in return for the hospitality and friendliness with which they were received, the Indians saw how little reverence the Spaniards felt for the sun, and how shamelessly and without the fear of God they violated the women. 
began to say that such people were not sons of God, but that they were worse than supites, which is their name for devil. The most likely answer is that Atahualpa was simply too busy to deal with the Spanish. He was engaged in a full-scale war for the survival of his kingdom against his brother Huascar in the central Andes. The chronicler Juan de Batanzos, who interviewed his Inca in-laws in the 1550s about their memories of those days, records that the news about Pizarro's landing reached Atahualpa at exactly the moment that he heard of his brother's surrender and capture, a moment of victory that must have occupied all his thoughts. When Pizarro began his march up into the hills, Atahualpa was just then in the middle of a march of his own, a triumphal procession back to Cusco with his army, to destroy the last remaining noble families loyal to his brother Huascar, to strip Cusco of its wealth, and drag all its gold back to his home of Quito, where he would declare himself the Emperor of the Inca. The arrival of this small group of foreigners was certainly a curiosity for him, but there's no indication he considered them a threat, or even considered them much at all. They were very few in number, they weren't outwardly aggressive, and his only concern must have been to prevent them from intervening in the final stages of this civil war. Taitu Kusi even records that Atahualpa was more interested in hunting the Europeans' horses, which he believed to be a new kind of llama. He brought no <laughs> weapons for battle or harnesses for defense. A new kind Only of knives llama. Only knives and lances for the purpose of hunting this new Colonize, kind of llama. Not concerned about the few people at hand, or interested in who they were. They brought only the knives for skinning and quartering the animals. Atahualpa agreed to meet with the Spanish, and sent an envoy of guides with instructions to lead them to a small town known as Cajamarca. This was one of the stops along Atahualpa's tour of the country, where he was already scheduled to conduct a ritual in which he presented ceremonial weapons to the local youth. <coughs> Agreeing to meet the Spanish was a show of friendship, but it's clear that Atahualpa also wanted to give them a show of force. In the heart of his empire, faced with the full might of the Inca army, any aggression by these mysterious foreigners could be swiftly crushed. Atahualpa <laughs> seems to have determined a to new make kind of llama subject, and if that didn't work, he would kill them. <laughs> <laughs> would not go according to his plan. Passing inland through the desert forests of the Amotape hills, and stopping every now and then at Inca towns and storehouses. They were supported by a team of enslaved men and women from Africa and Central America and by some locals that they had either convinced or forced to follow them. Along the way, when Pizarro met with any resistance, he made a point of burning local chiefs alive, oh. and he made an extensive use of this terror tactic throughout his campaign. Shit. Over the course of this journey, 
He burned dozens and maybe hundreds of men alive at the stake. Oh, God. Motherfucker. On their journey, they saw the desert landscape watered by extensive irrigation systems with crops and animals in abundance. As they climbed higher into the mountains, they marveled at the sophisticated bridges that crossed the tumultuous mountain rivers, many built of stone and some woven out of itchu grass. Francisco Jerez notes the fine roads leading up through the mountains. The road to Chincha passed through many villages and led from the river San Miguel. It was paved and bounded on each side by a wall. Two carts could be driven abreast upon it. From Chincha it led to Cusco, and in many parts of it, rows of trees were planted on either side for the sake of their shade on the road. As the Spaniards went, they learned more about the lands ahead, sometimes through torturing locals, other times from local lords who simply hated Atahualpa, who had been loyal to Huascar and wanted to see their new emperor fall. They found out that this king Atahualpa ruled from a city called Cusco, and that he held a vast army that could easily destroy them all. From one local lord, they heard about the recent civil war. They saw the bodies of recently executed men hanging by their feet at the entrance of one town, and heard that this was a punishment for backing the losing side in this war, as Francisco Jerez recounts. Until a year ago, all of those towns had been for the King Hello. of Cusco, the son of Hello. the old King of Cusco, until his brother, Atahualpa, rose up, and he has come conquering the land, taking great tributes and services, and every day he commits great cruelties on them. Despite all these warnings, Pizarro decided on a course of action. He would meet this interesting and take him prisoner. In this plan of action, Pizarro was clearly imitating his cousin, Hernán Cortés, who had effectively kidnapped the Emperor Moctezuma and used him to take control of his empire. But Cortés wow. hadn't invented this tactic, and it was actually extremely common among all the early colonists of the Americas. Pizarro himself had a long history of hostage-taking in Nicaragua and Panama, and it was common to capture local chiefs and force their tribes to pay a ransom to get them back. If this king Atahualpa was as rich as Pizarro had heard, then the ransom to be gathered from his capture would be truly enormous. The climb into the mountains was difficult. As the roads soared higher into the rocky passes, Pizarro's horsemen had to dismount and led their horses up narrow trails so steep that in some places they had been carved into stone staircases. Higher up, the snows were an unfamiliar challenge after so many months fighting through baking tropical heat, as Francisco Jerez records. The cold is so great on these mountains that some of the horses accustomed to the warmth of the valleys were frostbitten. 
At one point, some food and supplies arrived for the Spanish from Atahualpa, along with his wishes that they should come to meet him soon. Finally, after weeks of traveling, the Spanish found their way to the wide valley where the town of Cajamarca stood. The bowl of the valley was surrounded by green hills, and the valley bottom was marshy, fed by the waters of three rivers. When Pizarro and his men finally arrived at Cajamarca, they found the army of the Emperor Atahualpa encamped in the hills outside the town, numbering anywhere between 50 to 80,000 men. These were the crack troops of the Inca, battle-hardened from their campaigns in the Civil War. They must have looked with curiosity, but also a little derision at the ragtag group of Spanish soldiers, filthy from their weeks on the road, pink in the face and out of breath in the mountain air, many of them covered with boils and sores from tropical diseases. They must have looked like a sorry lot to the Grand Army of the Inca. Francisco Jerez recounts the tense atmosphere on Pizarro's arrival. The governor arrived at this town of Cajamarca on Friday the 15th of November 1532 at the hour of Vespers. In the middle of the town there was a great open space surrounded by walls and houses. The governor occupied this position and sent a messenger to Atahualpa to announce his arrival, to arrange a meeting that he might show him where to lodge. Meanwhile, he ordered the town to be examined with a view to discovering a stronger position where he might pitch the camp. The Emperor Atahualpa was still in seclusion as part of the ritual he was conducting, and he didn't hurry out to meet the Spanish. Pizarro approached from the northwest along the old imperial highway, and when they arrived he ordered his artillerymen to set up their cannons on the ceremonial plaza in the middle of the city, in full view of the encamped Inca army. The Inca soldiers must have looked on with curiosity, but they did nothing to stop them. That night, a storm came in over the hills, bringing rain and hail. The hailstones must have plinked and plonked on the helmets and armour of the Spanish, as they encamped among the temple stones, and gazed with narrowed eyes at the lights of the Inca camp, which must have stretched across the hills for a distance of miles, as Jerez recalls. All the men were on foot outside the tents with their arms, consisting of long lances like pikes, stuck into the ground. There seemed to be upwards of 30,000 men in the camp. In the morning, they rode out to meet Atahualpa. At first, he continued to play it cool, and showed little interest in them. In fact, he acted bored by their presence. Then he complained that they had treated some of his people poorly on the coast, 
burning people alive and abusing the priestesses in the temples. He even produced an iron collar that had been brought to him and that he said the Spanish had forced one of his allies to wear. Pizarro denied all this and promised that all he wanted was to swear loyalty to Atahualpa and fight on his behalf. The Inca emperor soon let down his guard and began to warm to the idea of welcoming the Spanish as subjects. He suggested that they should go together and crush a local chief who was defying his rule, and Pizarro happily agreed, saying that all the job would take would be ten Spanish horsemen. Atahualpa found this funny, and to seal the deal they drank maize beer together from golden cups that Pizarro must have noticed with some interest. Then they agreed to meet again in the Grand Plaza of Cajamarca the following day. Both men left the meeting satisfied. Atahualpa seems to have set his fears aside while Pizarro returned to his camp to hatch his plan for the following day. As the sun rose, still under cover of darkness, Pizarro and his men set their trap. He hid his cavalry inside the great halls that surrounded the plaza, while his artillery pieces were loaded and ready to fire on top of the ceremonial temple, and now all they had to do was wait. But Atahualpa, as usual, was in no hurry. Pizarro and his men waited and waited. And then finally, as the afternoon grew late, they heard the sound of the vast Inca army drawing near. Many of the Spanish soldiers were terrified. Their lookouts announced that Atahualpa had arrived at the head of his army. But Atahualpa, for his part, made a number of bad decisions. He had originally planned to enter the city with a troop of his well-armed soldiers. But his meeting with Pizarro the previous day seems to have set his mind completely at ease. At the last minute, he elected instead to march into Cajamarca with only his ceremonial troops and servants, most of which were unarmed. Jerez recalls the colourful scene that unfolded before the Spanish as the Inca king entered the courtyard, resplendent in full ceremonial dress. First came a squadron of Indians, dressed in a livery of different colours like a chessboard. They advanced, removing the straws from the ground and sweeping the road. Next came three squadrons in different dresses, dancing and singing. Then came a number of men with armour, large metal plates and crowns of gold and silver. Among them was Atahualpa, in a litter lined with plumes and macaws' feathers of many colours and adorned with plates of gold and silver. The Inca army behind them was also not prepared for a battle, and were instead arraigned for a ceremony. They were stretched out in a long column along the road approaching the city, which cut a narrow path over the marshy land and many of them would not even have realized that something was wrong before it was too late. 
When Atahualpa and his ceremonial guard entered the plaza, Pizarro gave the order to attack. All at once, the Spanish unleashed hell. The, the cannons would have gone off hell. with a terrifying crack, and cannonballs would have whizzed into the Inca lines, smashing bodies and bones to pulp as they went. Spanish arquebuses fired into the Inca procession, and then the cavalry hiding in the temples came charging out. The Spanish horses, guns, and cannons were three weapons that the Inca had never even imagined, let alone encountered before. And the effect of being attacked with all three at once must have simply frozen them in their tracks. Francisco Jerez writes about the pandemonium that unfolded in the main square of Cajamarca. Then the guns were fired off. The trumpets were sounded and the troops, both horse and foot, sallied forth. On seeing the horses charge, many of the Indians who were in the open space fled, and such was the force with which they ran that they broke down part of the wall surrounding it, and many fell over each other. The horsemen rode them down, killing and wounding and following in pursuit. The infantry made so good an assault upon those that remained in such a short time, most of them were put to the sword. The Emperor Atahualpa's escort stampeded in a panic back towards the rest of their still advancing army, and the resulting collision of people saw many crushed underfoot. Francisco Jerez recalls the panic that overtook them. So great was the terror of the Indians at seeing the governor force his way through them, at hearing the fire of the artillery and beholding the charging of horses, a thing never before heard of, that they thought more of flying to save their lives than of fighting. The Spanish cavalry rode back and forth through the throngs of fleeing Inca, and slaughtered as many as 7,000 of them over the following two hours, as the sun set red over the city. The death toll amounted to something like 40 dead for each Spanish soldier. The Inca chronicler Taitu Kusi records the panic that spread through the Inca ranks. The Indians were thus penned up like sheep in this enclosed plaza, unable to move because there were so many of them. Also, they had no weapons, as they had not brought any, being so little concerned about the Spaniards. The Spaniards stormed with great fury to the center of the plaza where the Inca's seat was placed. Taitukusi recalls bitterly the slaughter of that day. Because the Indians uttered loud cries, they started killing them with the horses, the swords or guns like one kills sheep, without anyone being able to resist them. Of more than 10,000, not even 200 escaped. As darkness fell, Atahualpa himself was captured, and Pizarro ordered his men to fall back into the temple. There, the Inca emperor seized, stunned and speechless. We can only imagine the shock and rage he must have felt to have fought for so long against his brother Huascar, 
To have the crown of the empire come so close to his grasp, to have sacrificed so much, only to have this bolt from the blue strike him down. He must have sat there in pure disbelief, trying to understand what had just happened. Francisco Jerez captures some of this in his account. The governor went to his lodgings with his prisoner at a welfare, despoiled of his robes, which the Spaniards had torn off in pulling him off the litter. The governor presently ordered native clothes to be brought, and when Atahualpa was dressed, he made him sit near him, and soothed his rage and agitation at finding himself so quickly fallen from his high estate. Pizarro, himself likely a little stunned at the speed and the totality of his victory, is recorded to have swelled with a number of incredible boasts. Among other things, the governor said to him, do not take it as an insult that you have been defeated and taken prisoner. For with the Christians who come with me, though so few in number, I have conquered greater kingdoms than yours, and have defeated other more powerful lords than you, imposing upon them the dominion of the emperor, whose vassal I am, and who is the king of Spain and of the <laughs> universal world. We come to conquer this land by his command. What happened next has passed into legend. Francisco Jerez recounts the glorious promises that Atahualpa made. Atahualpa feared that the Spaniards would kill him, so he told the governor that he would give his captors a great quantity of gold and silver. The governor asked him, how much can you give and in what time? Atahualpa said, I will give gold enough to fill a room 22 feet long and 17 wide, up to a white line which is halfway up the wall. The height would be that of a man's stature and a half. He said that up to that mark he would fill the room with different kinds of gold vessels, such as jars, pots, vases, besides lumps and other pieces. As for silver, he said he would fill the whole chamber with it twice over. He undertook to do this in two months. The governor told him to send off messengers with this object, and that when it was accomplished, he need have no fear. And Atahualpa made good on his promise. Over the next months, listening to this great documentary on the Inca by Fallen Civilizations on YouTube if you want to see the, the great um, cinematography then go to YouTube Fallen Civilizations this is episode 12 the Inca Cities in the Cloud part 2 and we're about 106 into the this episode. I'll pull up a bit now, like uh, an hour. And Atahualpa made good on his promise. Over the next months, gold flooded into the town of Cajamarca from all over the empire until the room was filled with a glittering pile of ornaments all. and vases. <laughs> 
They brought many vases, jars, and pots of gold, and much silver. And he said that more was on the road. Thus on some days, 20,000, on others, 30,000, on others, 50,000 or 60,000 paces of gold arrived, in vases, great pots weighing two or three arobas, and other vessels. The governor ordered it all to be put in the house where Atahualpa had his guards, until he had accomplished what he had promised. This offer by Atahualpa is often portrayed as a desperate bid by a terrified man bargaining for his life. But given the hand he was dealt, Atahualpa was actually making a pretty calculated play. Atahualpa regaled the Spaniards with tales of the vast wealth of the Inca Empire, and especially emphasized the city of Cusco as the jewel in its crown. He urged them to march there and loot it. And here we can see that Atahualpa's shock was already transforming into a kind of cold calculation. The peace colonizer. In fact, he had himself been intending to march to Cusco. Okay, um, this is a, I think this is a useful example of, of how we contribute to our own demise. Um, if we, uh, if we capitulate in any way to colonize, 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 colonize. So this is my, uh, new series called Hey Colonizer. Um, and, um, straightening and reorganizing and cleaning my room while I'm listening to this. I'm not, my name's Chester. I'm a Midas Touch producer and I cover Trump going to fucking jail, but I also cover ancient history and the Anunnaki, Samaritan tablets. I've actually covered all of Gaia's content in the past. Um, now I'm into the Samaritan tablets doing a lot of Billy Carson, doing a lot of, uh, of course, all the Gwen Kirshner because justice matters and all the, and uh, Christo Ivalis, actually, shout out to Christo, I use a lot of your content, dude, thanks, <laughs> and uh, a lot of his, um, his, uh, what do you call it, In fact, I should I should say, hey, Christo, man, I dig your content so much. I'm like already volunteering as a producer. I use your I use your awesome little um, thumbnails because they're hilarious, and I think we all need to see this. We need to see Trump charged. You know, we need Trump and in fucking indicted headlines like that. So, and it's your headlines. Your your thumbnails are about the closest. I could get so I used a lot of them like um um Trump uh, busted by Italian by uh police and busted for another um financial crime, you know. Like uh the that kind of that's what I would so I put my own spin on it because uh, you know I think uh, I understand the everybody's you know it 
I always felt like if I'm asking a question, then then there's uh, <clears throat> there's like ten people right behind me who also ha have the same question. They're just they just don't ask. <laughs> anyway, so this is a um I wanted to start a new series. This is part of my new series of uh, Hey Colonizer. <laughs> you know, listen to this and, and uh, you know to the. Victor rewrites history. Yeah. And, um, hmm. Victor rewrites history. So, and this is, we need to all look at history. And, uh, I, I you know, Mr. Death Sentence wants to, wants to ban uh critical race theory uh and so basically that that's that's code word for slavery and uh white skinned or you know it's not even white you know like fair skinned um people and spaniards that you know i've been thinking about it since since the since Spain, Isabella, and, and, uh, what's his name? Ferdinand. Since they fucking, um, financed all these, all these conquistadors, you know, uh, to rape, literally fucking rape and pillage, and, uh, this this horrific tale in this documentary about how the they gave the colon colonizer gave gave um a king uh, like an indigenous king a uh, That that he would colonizer would spare his life if he, uh, you know, said something, told him, told him some information. So so he did spare his spare his life, and then to be strangled. <laughs> so, that's not funny, Trista. Well, you know, retelling it, it's for yeah, it's horrifying. First time I heard that, but I mean, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm laughing because it's so fucking brutal. So fucking brutal. Either just like fucking cry and be horrified. It's my first reaction. And or you can laugh. It's uh, you know it's it's a coping mechanism. Okay, so you know sometimes people say, "Why are you exaggerating? Why why do you make a joke at?" Uh, a couple people have told me that in my youth, and uh, and that's why it's a coping mechanism, bitch. Is bitches. So, don't bash my coping mechanism. <laughs> that's good. Anyway, I just thought that was that was a great example of colonizer tactics. 
just like brutal beyond belief, beyond comprehension. Can't she can't, you know, the carnage, the horror, fucking heart of darkness. These pe these motherfuckers, all for uh, gold, and what was the other thing? Gold and uh, wolf power, and you know they would become rich. Colonizers, the first governors of those places. After they burned everything to the ground, you know, burned cities and and uh, brought pestilence. So that's that's what colonizer brought to these fucking paradise like paradisical villages and and uh, I mean they were warring amongst themselves. Some of them, but actually, I was I I was uh, doing doing in um, air quotes. I was doing in the entire Persian history, and I was very struck with the uh, Akkadian, Akkadian. Was it like? I just, uh, yeah, it, it sounds like Akkadian, but it's a little bit longer, Akkadian. Anyway, I hadn't heard about them before, so, um, and actually that one, that podcast is doing very well, I looked back, and actually my, my, my podcast, thank you for 43, or, it's going up like a thousand a day, it seems like, um, so, uh, I've got like 44,000 listens to one of these podcasts and I, and I have two podcasts on bike podcasting because this podcast the 42 43,000 one um that one is t it's totally hacked and you know probably that that device so they are uh you know they're they've been repressing me so you know the, but it, I have noticed it's been going up I I also have been kind of like spamming and blitzing the universe with you know a letter to President Biden asking him to get his fucking, you know, I didn't say fucking, his employees off my ass and, and uh, suppressing my everything, my communications. I'm in a captive portal, motherfuckers. And I even know their names. I have an expert witness, testimonial evidence, everything to uh, that uh, DHS employees are, uh, and their names are. Uh, Kevin, Brad's, and then there's a couple Richards, a couple Dicks, literally. So, um, and, and I always have to give a cease and desist order to my podcasts. And, uh, mention that you will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law, Kevin and Brad and the Dicks at DHS. So, go fuck yourselves, by the way. I need some TP for my bungholio. Get back to the show. In fact, he had himself been intending to march to Cusco and loot it. He conveniently neglected to mention his own city of Quito to the Spanish, where he had been intending to move his imperial court. He had quickly determined the Spaniards' weakness, that is, their obsession with gold above all else, and he would play on it in order to buy time and attempt to tip the scales back in his favor. 
He knew that filling a room with gold would take weeks and months, and would give him the time to dispose of his imprisoned brother and any other nobles who could still oppose him. Under the guise of sending out messengers to gather gold, he could get word out to all corners of his empire, and the Spanish didn't know that the rainy season was just beginning in the Andes. Even a short delay meant that they would soon face increased snowfall. The high mountain tundras would turn to impassable mud that would isolate them from their supply lines on the coast. In addition, the weight of the gold would stop them from moving quickly and potentially expose them to attack. Atahualpa's promise also ensured that they would stay in the relatively unimportant town of Cajamarca to wait for their gold, meaning that they couldn't march on to the more important centers of Cusco or Quito. And so Atahualpa's messengers came back and forth to him during his months of captivity. Only a few days after his capture, he heard some good news. News of the situation had reached the soldiers who were transporting his brother Huascar, and they had immediately executed their prisoner. Atahualpa was now the only remaining Inca prince with a strong claim to the throne, and he knew that the Spanish would need him to rule the empire on their behalf. In just a matter of days, he had actually turned this situation quite heavily in his favor. And the best part of the deal was, the gold that poured in every day to fill that room in Cajamarca didn't even belong to him. His treasury in the city of Quito remained untouched, while he directed the Spanish to exactly where to find the gold of his political rivals. They sent out riders to Cusco, and Atahualpa's soldiers showed them exactly where to loot the treasures from the fine houses of the nobles still loyal to his dead brother, and any who still challenged his claim. This was the work not of a desperate man, but of an incredibly shrewd political operator. When the rulers of the powerful city and shrine of Pachacamac came to meet Pizarro, Atahualpa saw an opportunity to rid himself of these powerful rivals. He told the Spanish that these men were thieves and liars, and that the shrine was incredibly wealthy. Pizarro obligingly put these lords in chains, and sent out horsemen to strip their temples of their wealth. The Spanish were now a weapon that Atahualpa could aim at will, with just a few words in the right ears. The problem for Atahualpa was that others would soon learn this lesson too. His great rivals, the lords of Cusco, would soon become more confident in speaking to Pizarro and his men, and they happily began to spread rumors among the Spanish. They passed on news that Atahualpa was planning to attack Pizarro, that an army of 200,000 of his frontier warriors were marching their way, along with a horde of 30,000 cannibals hungry for Spanish flesh. Fatally for the Inca king, this is one outlandish rumor that Pizarro seems to have believed. Regardless of its truth, 
Pizarro made a rash and impulsive decision, as Francisco Jerez recalls. When the governor, with the occurrence of the officers of his majesty and the captains and persons of experience sentenced Atahualpa to death, his sentence was that, for the treason he had committed, he should die by burning, unless he became a Christian. They brought out Atahualpa to execution, and when he came into the square, he said he would become a Christian. The governor was informed and ordered him to be baptized. The governor then ordered that he should not be burned, but that he should be fastened to a pole in the open space and strangled. This was done, and the body was left until the morning of the next day. Such was the end of this man. He died with great fortitude and without showing any feeling. On the Inca side, the chronicler Taitu Kusi, a nephew of Atahualpa, relates these events briefly and with little colour. The Spaniard positioned his spies everywhere and ordered highest alert. Without delay, he had my uncle Atahualpa brought out of prison into the open and, without any resistance, garroted him on a pole in the middle of the square. never made any attempt to fortify the city against the supposed attack, or to prepare themselves for battle. Pizarro sent out a scout to determine whether any army was headed their way, but no sign of it was ever found. The Spanish dug a grave for Atahualpa and left the last emperor of the Inca to the worms. After the death of Atahualpa, the Spanish installed the first of what would be many Inca puppet emperors, one of Atahualpa's brothers named Tupac Hualpa, but he died of European diseases in only a matter of months. Next, they crowned one of Atahualpa's brothers, a man named Manco Inca Yapanqui. He was the father of the chronicler Taitu Kusi, who we've heard a fair amount from already. He was a loyal puppet king to the Spanish for a while, but as soon as he saw his opening, he rebelled. He laid siege to the Spanish in Cusco and sent another army to attack the new capital of Lima too, resulting in the deaths of as many as 500 European settlers. He set up a rebel state in the remote jungles of Vilcabamba, where the Andes sloped down into the Amazon rainforest. This was the last fortress of the free Inca, and they would hold out against the Spanish for a further 30 years. Pizarro's cousin Pedro recalls the audacity of this rebellion. Manco Inca took refuge in the Andes, which is a land of enormous rugged mountains with very bad passes and where it's impossible for horses to enter. And from there, he sent many high-ranking captains all over the realm in order to gather up all the natives who could fight, who could go with them to lay siege to Cusco and to kill all of us Spaniards who were there. As the years passed, countless puppet emperors would be installed to rule over the Andes but none of them lasted for very long. 
Several were assassinated by their own people, who looked on them quite rightly as collaborators with the Traitors. foreign invaders. Yeah. Others escaped into the mountains and became rebel chiefs, raising armies against the Spanish or fleeing to the free Inca fortress of Vilcabamba. Yeah. In fact, really for at least the next South 50 America. years, the Spanish fought a running series of guerrilla counterinsurgencies against the Inca, struggling to pacify a land that they had long since declared conquered. As the French monk and explorer Marcos de Niza recalls, It was only because of this maltreatment that the peoples of Peru were finally provoked into revolt and took up arms against the Spanish as indeed they had every cause to do. For the Spanish never treated them squarely, never honored any of the undertakings they gave, but rather set about destroying the entire territory for no good reason and without any justification. And eventually the people decided that they would rather die fighting than put up any longer with what was being done to them. In the year 1616, the Quechuan nobleman, Philippe Guaman Poma de Ayala authored a remarkable text known as the Letter to a King. In it, he recounts the abuses and injustices of the Spanish colonialists and denounces the hardship exacted on his people. It amounts to one of the first full-throated denunciations of the colonial system ever written by one of its subjects. The Spaniards in Peru should be made to refrain from arrogance and brutality towards the Indians. Just imagine that our people were to arrive in Spain and start confiscating property, sleeping with the women and girls, chastising the men and treating everybody like pigs. What would the Spaniards do then? Even if they tried to endure their lot with resignation, they would still be liable to be arrested, tied to a pillar and flogged. And if they rebelled and attempted to kill their persecutors, they would certainly go to their death on the gallows. Francisco Pizarro had dreamed of one day surpassing his younger cousin Cortez in the glory of conquest. And by many measures, he had. He had destroyed an empire ten times the size of the Aztec Empire with about a third of the manpower, and he had done so at an enormous distance from the nearest friendly port in Panama. The writer Francisco Jerez put this achievement bluntly. When in ancient of modern times has so great an enterprise been undertaken by so few against so many odds? and to so varied a climate and seas, and at such great distances, conquer the unknown. The chronicler Cieza de Leon even places Pizarro on the pedestal of heroes like Alexander the Great. Many nations have excelled others and overcome. The few have conquered the many before. They say Alexander the Great, with 33,000 Macedonians, undertook to conquer the world. So with the Romans, too. But no nation has with such resolution passed through such labors, or such long periods of starvation, or covered such immense distances as the Spanish have done. In a period of 70 years, they have overcome and opened up a new world, greater than the one of which we acknowledge, 
exploring what was unknown and never before seen. But Pizarro's days of glory would be short-lived. In the ten years that he ruled over Peru, he presided over the steady collapse and disintegration of the entire society that he had once heard such incredible stories about. Much of the local population was reduced to the level of serfs serving European lords. The Europeans systematically stripped the temples and palaces of the Inca, demolishing their cities stone by stone and reusing the material to build their own palaces and churches. <laughs> Despite the destruction of their society and the repression that they suffered, the people of the Andes would continue to fight to keep their indigenous culture and the memory of their history alive. The writers of the enigmatic document known as the Warochiri Manuscript, writing at the end of the 16th century and under the direction of that Spanish priest who considered their old gods to be devils, wrote the following introduction to their book which to this day stands as one of the greatest sources of information about the lives of these mountain people before the arrival of Europeans. If the ancestors of the people called Indians had known writing in earlier times, then the lives they lived would not have faded from view. As the mighty past of the Spanish is visible until now, so too would theirs be. But since things are as they are, and since nothing has been written until now, I set forth here the lives of the ancestors of the Warochiri people, who all descended from one forefather, what faith they held, how they lived from their dawning age onward, those things and more. Village by village, it will all be written down. A fifth of the gold that Pizarro had accumulated at Cajamarca was sent back to the Spanish crown. The rest Pizarro kept. He melted much of it down into ingots and divided it among his men. They were now richer than many of them had ever imagined possible. Some returned to Spain, while others stayed behind in Peru and established themselves as colonial lords. One chronicler wrote in ironic terms about the fate of one of these conquistadors who returned home, a man named Mancio Serra de la Guizamon, whose descent into gambling and vice was representative of the later lives of many of these soldiering adventurers. At the time the Spaniards first entered the city of Cusco, the gold image of the sun from its temple was taken in booty by a nobleman and conquistador by the name of Le Guzamon, who I knew and was still alive when I came to Spain. He lost it in a night of gambling. Giving rise to the joke, he gambled the sun before the dawn. Greed and corruption also crippled the colony of Peru, now referred to by its new name of New Castile. As news of Pizarro's conquest spread, Spaniards from all across the colonial Americas began to flock to Peru. In 1534, a large fleet of 12 ships arrived that was led by a man named Pedro de Alvarado. He was a feared conquistador 
who had joined Cortez on his conquest of Mexico. As we saw in episode 9, he was the captain who had been left behind in Tenochtitlan and who had slaughtered the Mexica people as they celebrated their festival of Tosh cattle. Since then, he had developed a reputation for his cruelty. He arrived in Peru with hundreds of Spanish men and women, along with a sizable number of slaves, artillery, crossbows, and war dogs. A full party of settlers prepared to colonize this new land. He was among the first to follow in Pizarro's footsteps, but he would be far from the last. Before long, these new arrivals came into conflict, and the colony was plunged into civil war. Soon, Pizarro was fighting one of his former captains over who would rule in Cusco. The reign of the conquistadors in Peru was not the enlightened rule of the glorious crusading Christian knights that they had imagined, but resembled something like rival mafias fighting over gangland territory. These wars further devastated the land and left what remained of the monumental works of the Inca in ruins. The free Inca in the rebel city of Vilcabamba soon learned to bridge the technological divide with the Spanish, and it took them only a couple of decades. As early as 1537, the king Manco Inca defeated the Spanish at Pilcosuni, and they came into possession of modern weapons, including arquebuses, artillery, and crossbows. Just one year later, Manco Inca was recorded to be skilled enough to ride a horse into battle. In the early 1540s, several Spanish refugees would teach Inca warriors how to use Spanish weapons. And by the 1560s, it was recorded that many Inca had developed considerable skill in using early firearms and riding horses. But it would not be enough. The last Inca ruler to lead the free city of Vilcabamba was a man named Tupac Amaru. Tupac. On June the 24th of the year 1572, a Spanish army led by veteran conquistador Martin Arturo de Arvieto made a final advance on the Inca's remote jungle capital. Use this to turn it into a the city play. finally fell to Spanish cannons, and the Inca king Tupac Amaru fled the city. He was finally caught by the Spanish in the year 1572 and marched back to Cusco to face a military trial with five of his generals. These generals were all hanged while Tupac Amaru was sentenced to be beheaded. On the day of his execution, a scaffold was erected in front of the main cathedral in the central square of Cusco, all draped in black cloth. It's reported that between 10,000 to 15,000 people came out to watch, and the plaza was so densely crowded that the chief officer of the court had to ride his horse through the people to clear a path. Tupac Amaru was carried through the crowd with his arms tied behind his back. When he mounted the scaffold, accompanied by the Bishop of Cusco, the entire crowd let out a blood-curdling wail of mourning. As one eyewitness named Martin de Morua 
the cause. As the magnitude of Indians, who completely filled the square, saw that sad and lamentable spectacle, and knew that their Inca and Lord was about to die, they deafened the skies, making them reverberate with their cries and wailing, and their relatives, who were near, cried out with tears and sobs. Tupac Amaru reached out his hand. He gave a clap, at which all the people fell silent. This was a manifest sign of the obedience, fear and respect that the Indians had for their Incas and lords. With just a clap, they silenced the cries and tears coming from the heart that are so difficult to hide. Then the emperor of the free Inca let out these final words. Pachacamac, witness how my enemy shed my blood. With him, the Inca line came to an end. Pizarro had wanted to be a conqueror like Julius Caesar, and in the manner of his death, he got his wish. He was in his late 60s in June of 1541, when a group of armed men loyal to one of his rivals burst into his palace with daggers and assassinated him, stabbing him multiple times. He managed to kill two of his attackers and wound a third before being stabbed in the throat and then falling to the floor where his attackers flocked around him and struck him again and again. I wonder whether in those moments he thought about the Inca Emperor Atahualpa and the look in his eyes as he had been strangled against that pole in Cajamarca. And perhaps then he might have understood what that look meant, to have gained everything you had ever fought for, only to have it snatched away in the violent hands of another. In the early 1930s, the sculptor Ramsay MacDonald created three copies of a bronze statue depicting a European soldier with sword drawn, riding a horse, the visor of his swooping 15th century helmet cocked open. He originally intended to sell the statue to Mexico as a depiction of the conqueror Hernán Cortés, but the statue was rejected. Instead, MacDonald approached the Peruvian government and sold them the same statue, saying that it could just as easily depict Pizarro. The statue was erected in the Peruvian capital of Lima in 1934, and perhaps it's a fitting piece of irony that even in death, Pizarro found himself playing the eternal second place to his younger and more refined cousin. In 2003, facing a rising swell of popular hatred towards him, and a growing sense of indigenous identity in Peru, Pizarro's statue was removed from its position beside the government palace and was placed in a more obscure spot in a nearby park where it remains to this day. Since the 19th century, a mummified body found in the cathedral of Cusco was claimed to be the body of Francisco Pizarro and many people came to pay their respects but more modern analysis has shown that the body belongs to someone else. 
as the Inca Empire fractured and collapsed, and its ruins were built over by the Spanish, only those rare places that the Europeans couldn't reach or didn't know about were preserved. One of these was the cloud outpost of Machu Picchu. In fact, the Spanish never even heard about its existence. Sometime in the 1530s, as the Inca Empire collapsed, the people who operated it as a royal retreat or a coca plantation stopped receiving supplies from the rest of the empire. They simply left it behind to crumble into the hillside. The thatched roofs of this mountainside town would have been the first to rot and fall in, with vines and plants taking root among the eaves putting down roots and rotting away the roof beams. As the cloud rolled in over the hills day after day, mosses and lichen would have begun to grow over the walls, and the immaculate terraces would have been completely covered in a winding growth of weeds. Little by little, the town of Machu Picchu would have disappeared beneath the shade of the trees until nothing remained to show that it had been there at all. The site of Vilcabamba, the last fortress of the Inca, where they held out for more than 30 years against the Spanish, was also abandoned, and its location forgotten. Its walls crumbled, and silk cotton trees put their roots down between its stones. Today it's located in a place known as Espiritu Pampa, or the Plain of Ghosts. On July the 2nd, 1964, the flamboyant explorer and archaeologist Jean Savoy was the first to travel to these ruins and correctly identify it as the last Inca stronghold of Vilcabamba. Savoy writes movingly about the eerie scenes as he traversed this series of melancholy ruins, crumbling beneath the green twilight of the forest. The Inca road we have been following comes to a halt. I have the men spread out. It is a half hour before we find the groups of buildings. The stonework is of better quality than what we have seen before. It is evident that the cut white limestone blocks had once fit snugly together, although many had now been broken by feeder vines that had wormed their way between the stones and pried them apart. One of the buildings, a rectangular construction with two doorways, guards a green-lit temple. A high elevated bulwark of stone consisting of rooms with niches and fallen door lintels, inner courtyards, and enclosures. It must have been very impressive when the Incas lived here. A large sacred boulder rests beside one of the walls, it looks as if it may have fallen from the top of the platform wall. A magnificent strangler fig with a spreading crown some 100 feet above our heads locks one of the walls in a grip of gnarled roots. Some of the rocks are squeezed out of place by its vice-like grip. Rattan vines hang down from its upper branches, forming a screen through which we must cut our way. I want to end this episode by reading a piece of Inca poetry, supposedly composed by that great Inca king, Pachacuti Inca Yapanqui, in the dawning age of their empire. It's a prayer to the creator god, Viracocha, 
asking him to protect and keep the people of the Andes safe. We can imagine that as their world began to fall apart, the people of the Andes must have whispered this prayer to themselves, over their children and their families, and over the towns and cities nestled in the narrow valleys of the mountains. As you listen, try to imagine what it would feel like to watch the great society of the Inca deteriorate around you, beneath the twin forces of plague and civil war. Imagine watching the greed of the nobles tear your land apart, while a foreign power with guns and horses arrives to dictate your fate and demolish your cities brick by brick. Imagine the sorrow you would feel watching the blooming terraces empty and fill with weeds, the thatched roofs falling in, the wind howling through the halls and the walls crumbling as the cloud washed in, relentless and forgetful over the hills. Oh, Viracocha, where are you? Outside, inside, above this world in the clouds, below this world in the shades. Hear me, answer me, take my words to your heart. For ages without end, let me live. Grasp me in your arms, hold me in your hands, receive this offering wherever you are, my lord Viracocha. <laughs> in shining clothes, let man live well, let woman live well, let the peoples multiply, live blessed and prosperous lives. What you have infused with life for ages without end, hold it in your hand. Before you stand your servants and the poor to whom you have given life and put in their places, let them be happy and blessed with their children and descendants. Let them not fall into veiled dangers along the lonely road. Let them live many years without weakening or loss. Let them eat. Let them drink. Oh, my Lord, my Creator, let them increase so the people do not suffer and not suffering believe in you. Let it not frost. Let it not hail. Preserve all things. Thank you once again for listening to the Fall of Civilizations podcast. I'd like to thank my voice actors for this episode, Annie Kelly, Jamie Tanner, Gerald Condlin, Peter Walters, Lachlan Lucas, and Jimmy Lai. Special thanks go to Edith Kiespe.
Hi, Paul Cooper, exclamation point. Congratulations. This is fantastic scholarship, exclamation point. I am Oxford University Press voice actor, comma, and would and would love to volunteer to be part of your Fall of Civilizations documentaries, exclamation point, HMU, documentaries, HMU. HMU smiley face. The grandmother, Celia Quispe, for helping us hear the ancient poetry of King Pachacuti in its original Ayacuchano Quechua. Much of the music for this episode was composed and compiled by Pavlos Capralos using authentic Andean instruments. If you enjoyed these traditional performances, they will be available to download for all Patreon subscribers.